Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Are we recording? Okay. That was your phone. Turn it off. It wasn't. What was it then? Don't know. Okay. All right. I was about to do my big, Oi, Mark, what's up? And then you've... No, no, you can do that. That's fine. I don't think there's anything. That's fine. All right. Well, just something went... And it's usually your phone. It is usually. It's very kind of unprofessional of me. Anyway, it's down there. Mm -hmm. So uh, we we kind of started, didn't we? Oh, have we begun? Have we started? Okay, fine. Sorry. In our kind of rambly, shambly sort of way. Anyway, but you've already, just merely moments ago, had a rather profound moment, which I think is, which is you just need to share. You've just been wasting five minutes of your... What did I do? Oh. No, it was just, it wasn't a joke. That was, I've literally, just because I've got a, I've got a computer with a black um, keypad and there's a, there's a stain on it. And I've just been, I've, while we were doing all the Saturday links, Saturday links, that stuff, I've been trying to rub the stain off and I couldn't figure out how it looks like a Greek, like a, and I've been spent fighting and then I realised it was the shadow of the microphone. <laughs> I've literally been trying to rub a shadow off the, my lovely matte black computer screen. It's, I think that's a metaphor for something or other. So No, I think it just means that I'm an idiot. Been trying to scrub a shadow from your soul. And literally, I just did the thing about, you know, I've, I, I, was, I couldn't, I, nothing was working. I couldn't figure out how. And then I was wondering whether, it's, whether it was actually that that was the one clean bit of the thing, because the rest of it is that kind of hot black desiato, you know, matte black. How much more black could it be? And then it was, I picked the thing up to look at it. And then, it, that was, and then, it, and then I went, oh, Right. Hot Black Desiato, of course, being uh, a Douglas Adams creation yes. from Hitchhikers, but actually... But also, also an estate agent. A real apparently. estate agent, and he got it from the estate, from the estate agent. agent. And yeah. you can still buy houses from, from Hot Black Desiato. <laughs> which I was almost tempted to do just to be a part of the Douglas Adams world. Yeah. I, it's funny because I've been listening recently, I told you, to the... We found the, 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 the box CD set Oh, the of, Stephen King version. Oh, sorry, this is the Stephen King. Yeah, Stephen King reads <laughs> The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Stephen Galaxy. Fry version. And then Stephen Fry reads Carrie. They're lovely. It's, you know, it's the namesake series, you know. So Denim Elliot reads T.S. Elliot. You don't get that joke, do you? It's hilarious. Okay. No, it's... Oh, never mind. Anyway, um, so, uh, so yes, so we've got the Hot Black Desiato and the flying the spaceship into the sun is all happening. It is a terrific name. It's just brilliant. I can't believe it's actually in the state agent. Where are, they, are they based in, like, Camden or somewhere? Uh, yeah, Islington. Islington. Camden or somewhere, Islington. Yeah, yeah no, Islington is not Camden. Obviously, no. <laughs> Morrissey didn't write a song called "Come Back to Islington," did he? This is all, these are all different parts of North London, by the way. And what? Are How the, many bits of North London can you name, Simon? Whenever you th- whenever I go back to Douglas Adams stuff, which would, is all the time, he would have been so great on Twitter. He would have been maybe the greatest uh, ever Twitter person. Yeah. Did you ever meet him? Yes. He's unbelievably tall. Yeah, two or three times. I have a I have a huge uh, fondness for him because he was the first ever interview I did. Um, I was working for City Life magazine, and uh, they just they just brought out the script of Hitchhiker's Guide, the radio series. And uh, so I said, "Oh, I, lo- I love Hitchhiker's Guide." And they said, "Oh, well, we've got we've, Douglas Adams is coming to do an interview. Would you like to do it?" And I, I was just delighted. So I interviewed Douglas Adams. I was completely in awe of him. 
I made a complete fool of myself. Um, he was really, you know, sort of lovely and, and you know, but obviously had, had been interviewed by proper people, not some idiot who'd never done it before. And I did say at the beginning, this is the first interview I've ever done, and his face kind of fell. Um, but he was really lovely. And, but he was really, really tall. I did him for Meaning of Lif, and I did him for uh, some other thing he was promoting when I was at Radio 1. But the thing I remember him most for is I remember him, I think about him every Christmas. Because when, whenever the carols come round and you have to go to carol service and school carol service, and you yeah. think, oh, I don't want to sing this one again. I remember a Christmas party, which was, I think it was a hat-trick Christmas party, the production company I was working with at the time, and Douglas Adams was there and he insisted that everybody sang carols. He was the most... And what was... <laughs> I wrote... He's the, one of the... You know, one, a great atheist brain. You know, he absolutely wanted nothing to do with the religious side of it, but he loved carols so much, he went, went around dragooning people into singing carols. I think, <laughs> well, if Douglas Adams can do it, then so can I. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I've, funnily enough, I was reading... Because I read... Uh, the first three, actually, the first four Hitchhiker's because are there are there five in the end? I read Hitchhiker's yes, Guide, Restaurant, the End of the Universe, Life, the Universe, and everything, and then and then there is this there's, so long and thanks for so long that is which, which which not so great, but it's the the like uh, the, the, the last one that so which is Life, the Universe, and everything, isn't it? The one in which, yeah, Restaurant at the End of the Universe is the second one. Yeah, but it's the Cricket Wars one, which is Life, the Universe, and everything, which I think is absolutely brilliant. And apparently, it's so, I, I may be getting this wrong, but apparently the, the idea of it was dreamt up originally as a Doctor Who plot. And there's another book called Salmon of Doubt, which is a collection of all these kind of random okay. writings. OK, but Life, the Universe, and everything, is, and the Cricket Wars stuff is absolutely brilliant. I'm and, looking at Robin's face, by the way, and Robin's face... He's says, too young to remember. I know. He's but, too young to remember. He's a child. He was... He was just, he was running around in knee-high socks. They were banned in the 80s at that point. Um, but Robin's face is saying to me, because I can read every nuance. Yeah, saying, this is not going this in the is podcast. quite enough. No, for some of it will. That's quite enough, Douglas Adams, for now. Don't you have any emails that I've spent ages okay. perusing? So I do. Have I correctly interpreted? See, I have, absolutely. Uh, James Hargreaves has been on. James, James, Robertson, Robertson, Thomas. No. James, James... Oh, yeah. Robertson, Robertson. A.A. Milne. No, James, James, Robertson, James, James, George Dupree took great care of his mother, although she was only three. James, James said to his mother, mother, he said, said he, you must never go down to the end of the town if you don't go down with me. Well, that's the end of the podcast. for downloading us. We'll be back next week. James, James, Robertson, Weatherby, George Dupree. That's what it is. And Robin didn't say that in my ex. He's got no idea what I'm talking about. No. And his face is now saying... Oh, I've done it before, apparently. That's enough, Douglas Adams, and that's enough random poetry. Okay. James Hargreaves says, on last week's podcast, you were talking about the Carpenters, and in particular, Goodbye to Love. Morrison, Morrison, not Robertson. And I was just wondering if Mark was aware that... The song was actually inspired by a film, and did he know what that film was? No, I don't know that, no. Here comes a very entertaining and interesting item. The answer is Rhythm on the River, 1940, starring Bing Crosby, Mary Martin and Basil Rathbone. No. Rathbone plays a celebrated songwriter whose most celebrated song is called... Goodbye to Love. Goodbye to Love. The song is never played, but the title is often mentioned by Rathbone bemoaning the fact that he's never been able to better it. Richard Carpenter was watching this movie one night and hearing that title over and over was the spark of inspiration that he, along with his writing partner, John Bettis, was able to turn into the classic song, which we know and love, which we were talking about. That's brilliant. Last week, the story is recounted on various Carpenter's documentaries, in particular, The Carpenter's Story, Only Yesterday, uh, where you get to see Richard Carpenter and Tony Peluso, who played the guitar, 
talking about that fuzz guitar interlude for which Richard received hate mail. Yeah, apparently so. Anyway, uh, tickety tonk, old fruits, and all that jazz. Uh, thank you, Joe. That was that is. Who knew? Goodbye to love, and it actually was a song, but it was referred to in the movie. Brilliant, but isn't it great as well that the Carpenters release a song with a fuzz guitar on, and he gets hate mail, which is like your man shouting Judas at at uh, Bob Dylan at the wherever it was Manchester Free Trade Hall for plugging the guitar <laughs> in. It's just there is something about. I feel that that moment has passed when people could actually be that cross about the use of an electronic guitar. Except now everyone is cross all the time on um, social media. That's right. They don't send you a letter; they just tweet it. Ken in Manchester, regarding your discussion about the ongoing commenting by the patron at the T2 train spotting showing in last week's show. Oh, yes. I thought I would share my particular experience with something vaguely similar. Many years ago, I was in Manchester watching Peter Mullen's family-friendly, warm and fuzzy laugh fest called Ned's. You remember that? I remember Ned's, yeah. OK, if it's got Peter Mullen, it's not going to be any of those, obviously. <laughs> when anything particular unpleasant happened, which was quite often, yeah. an audience member behind us exclaimed a very disappointed and withering, Oh, dear. The OD has got more and more concerned and more and more disappointed. It reached a climax when the film's protagonist taped knives onto his hands in anticipation of a street fight. That's right, I remember that. It was the real disappointment in the man's voice that tickled us. He really was concerned. He shuffled off sometime before the film's mildly surreal zoo conclusion. I wonder what he was expecting from the film. Anyway, I went to see The Naked Gun in Leicester in the late 80s. A man in a wheelchair kept laughing so hard he kept letting go of his wheels or his brake and he would slowly roll down the auditorium until he'd come to rest in the, against the corner of the screen. He would then recover from his extreme hilarity and proceed to slowly reverse wheel himself back up the mild slope to the rear of the auditorium until another bit in the film would make him laugh again and he would slowly roll down uh, once more. <laughs> Certainly enhanced my enjoyment of the film and the gentleman was having such a fantastic time it rubbed off on everybody who was there. Brilliant. I mean, it, it is a really, really properly funny film and it is one of those things that bears viewing more than once because the slapstick jokes are really funny and the verbal jokes are really funny. Um Alison Sang was on uh, again. Remember, we had a little discussion about how you pronounce her surname. Yes, I believe that Alison Sang t- uh, tweeted me to say that I had pronounced her name correctly on a number of occasions. Well, she says, ignore the T, so, uh, yeah. so that's exactly right. Thank you for the amusing discussion of my name last week, she says. Uh, your repetitions of my name with varying states of incredulity has made for a most excellent ringtone. <laughs> so that's what we're good for. Anyway... Just wanted to briefly get in touch again to let you know that I too need to be stand, standing corrected. Just for the sake of accuracy, I feel I must amend my previous email. Okay. My husband, he of leprosy mission working for... This is because I made a yes. flippant comment about leprosy and then she wrote to, to correct me and I was happy to stand corrected and now yes. she's been corrected herself. Okay, fine. My husband, he of the leprosy mission working fame, on listening to your leprosy-related witterings at the end of last week's podcast, responded with, well, that's not right though, is it? He then went on to inform me that I too need to stand corrected, something I'm more than happy to do, apparently. Recently, it was discovered that red squirrels can also contract leprosy, although this is different in a different form to the current strain, more like the bacteria found in medieval leprosy cases. Did, did we say before that there were only... Was it, was it humans and... Armadillos. Armadillos, that's right. Armadillos. To which we now add red squirrels. How bizarre. It is quite literally not quantum, baby. Anyway, I promise now I shall stop contacting you about bacterial skin diseases. However, should you ever need an extremely occasional leprosy research correspondent to keep you abreast of any further developments, I'd be happy to oblige. Alison Sang. That's fantastic. That well, thank you very much for that. Uh, on, 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 a, on a number, How, What a strange thing. Red squirrels, God. I mean, I am, I'm the classic example of somebody who hears that kind of thing and then 
will spend the next couple of days being astonished by it, although not understanding any of it. Have you um, have you logged on recently to British Podcasts? Pardon? The British Podcast Awards dot com. Have you looked at that recently? No, should I? Hang well, on. apparently you can vote for your favourite podcast on there. What the Archers? There's a listener choice category. Hang on, the British Podcast. Awards. Yes, a man looks something up. Well, no, you said, have I logged on to it? So new British Podcast Awards and opens for entries. Yes, that's right. And there's a listener's choice. What do you think people could could vote for? Well, the Archers or um, Test Match Special, I imagine. Test Match Special is always a favourite. He's also there. Is it? Uh, So if (laughs) if people want to have a look and then vote for their favourite podcast. Yes. Whatever that might be. The Archers. Yeah, you, you won't find us at, uh, as Entertainment. It's down as Kermit and Mayo, OK, which is the proper. Okay. Kermit and Mayo's film review, that's what it's there, in case you just wanted to have a look while you were there. Right, does OK. This, does this feel like abuse of power in any way? Yes, but, I, but it's, it also felt like an explanation to somebody who actually took about five minutes to realise that they did know what you were talking about. And, and I think we get a pound for everyone who logs on. OK, great. to our incredibly large coffers. OK, you and I personally get that. Yeah, one each. OK, I'm going to sneeze in a minute. Ah! <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, you know, I have to. I have to warn. The reason I say I'm going to say I have to warn my family when I when I'm about to sneeze because it, every everyone in the house, the cats, the dogs, everyone leaps out of their skin unless I go. So I've got. If I'm going to sneeze, I've got about a two second warning time. I'm really. Well, I think sorry. that's actually gone out on uh, BBC News Twenty Four. <laughs> I actually think there's a little underground eruption going on, and actually it was an overground eruption. Anyway, just in case people want to uh, log on and have a look, that would be a very nice thing. Thank you very much indeed for bearing with us so far. Your favourite podcast continues after this short break. The one that you can vote for. That's the. That's okay. Exactly just the just, just checking. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the programme. Don't forget the live stream, always particularly gorgeous. You can see Mark dressed in his traditional uh, funeral outfit and you can see me dressed in my usual teen- teenager outfit. outfit. And uh, what fun, you can see the chaos uh, on our desk Go via the Five Live website. Sanjeev was very relieved to see that you kept your desk as chaotic. Thing is, there so, there's so much communication so much to do. that comes into the show that you know it all has to be arranged in particular piles or scattering. It's not that you're a mucky pup. It's that you've just got too much work on. Well, yes, uh, both of them uh, are true. And here from the top of the pile, an email from Peter Kamein. Thank you, Peter, for getting in touch. To mayo at bbc.co.uk. Dear sirs, my wife and I don't go to the cinema very often as we are parents to a toddler. When Grandma suggested that she take our daughter for an evening so that we could have some time together, we jumped at the chance, yes. as, as indeed you as would. Indeed, everybody does, yeah. We decided to go to this particular cinema in this particular area of the UK to watch La La Land. It was one of those cinemas where you have a bite to eat and a drink whilst you watch the film. You've seen these? OK, uh, yes. I mean, I, have, I've, I haven't been to one, but I have heard of We've them. We've talked about them before, and they, yes. you know, they bring you food and all that. Yeah. It's not my usual... Cup of tea, says Peter. But we really enjoyed the experience and the staff were great. A nice touch was when the house manager came in front of the audience to request that everybody turn their phones off and to enjoy the movie, which is a nice thing to do. My wife and I settled in for some quality time on a comfy sofa and some half-decent Hollywood entertainment. It was then that we were surprised to see an audience member rising from their sofa, stroll in front of the screen, proceed to the corner of the cinema to a cleaning cupboard and open the door of the cupboard, which emitted a very bright light. We then witnessed our fellow audience member vomiting into a janitor's sink in silhouette. No! How did they know? Oh, my word! How did they know that there was a... (laughs) A room in the corner. Maybe they'd done it before. (laughs) 
The house manager had a word with the culprit and he returned to his seat. I'm impressed that the house manager is in watching the film. It was half an hour into La La Land when the same man went to the cleaner's cupboard for a second time to throw up. This is when his companion followed him and they both headed for the exit. One vom is allowed, two, and you're out. Stretching it, stretching it. The strange thing is, it didn't spoil our enjoyment of the film at all. In fact, it somehow enhanced it. (laughs) The atmosphere in the cinema was relaxed and polite, so it was easy to forgive this transgression. Life was going on around us as we absorbed what was happening on the screen, eating, drinking, and a man doing technicolour yawns in the corner of our eye. I'm not sure I would have been so forgiving on a different occasion. As for the film, we enjoyed it. Perfect date night fodder. We appreciated the time off parenting duties as well. I think, basically, Peter, you were all plastered. And that's why... Sounds like it. You know, they've been served food. Another bottle of Chablis, sir. Oh, <laughs> fine, that's very good. And then Janitor's the... closet's just over there. It does remind me that when... Um... Is that a usual thing, that there's a janitor's closet in the corner? I have no idea. The only, it just it reminded me there is a, a story in, I think it was the New York Times, when The Exorcist first opened and there were all these... Um, that's good. To less than ten minutes before I got to there, um, where there were all these stories about people, you know, hysterical when the film came out, and there was the manager of a cinema whose quote was, "My janitors are going crazy, wiping up the vomit," and that was the, that was then the phrase that became the, the phrase about you know, audience reaction. My janitors are going crazy, wiping up the vomit. At least in this case, the janitor wasn't having to wipe it up; it was already. In the sink. Okay, which is very good. What are you just looking for? I'm trying to find... I've got a a handbill, which Adam Porter... A uh, handbill? A handbill, which was given to me, which I'm going to bring... You mean a leaflet? Yes, and relevant to this particular story. I'll I'll come back to it when I don't need to to rub it. Anyway, I mean, maybe having a janitor's cupboard in the corner is a standard thing and they're all suitably disguised and you can't tell. But anyway, if you're you're taken short in this particular cinema... Have we got a janitor's cupboard in the church? Is it next to... That's actually quite a good point. Because we do need one. We have so many different groups now. You know in um, Hidden Figures, where they, where they managed to find a, an important plot point by just... Holding, holding up something up to the light, yes. Some redacted script holding up to the light, and yeah. I can now see where this cinema was that Peter went to, where you can go and... Well, has it been redacted? It's been redacted, yes, yeah, so we don't... Uh, so we don't so Did Robin do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK. Otherwise, we might be damaging the reputation of that particular... I see. Yeah, cinema. Fine. The uh, the Acme Screen One <laughs> in Bromsgrove. Vomitorium. Here's another thing, which you, uh, box office top ten coming up, by the way, and then uh, also Brie Larson uh, after 2.30. John from South London, which he's written S-A-A-F, London. A strange and philosophically troubling incident I experienced at my local multiplex yesterday. It's prompted me to write in. Having sat down to enjoy an early screening of Logan... I noticed the darkness of my peripheral vision slowly filling with the unwelcome but these days sadly all too familiar glow of some mug glued to their phone screen. Mm, yeah. Okay, well we're all this is all very yeah, familiar. We've all been there. However, it soon became clear this was no ordinary code of conduct violation. This individual was walking down the aisle at an unusually subdued pace. So transfixed was he by the phone that he seemed almost unaware of his surroundings, and rather than taking a seat, kept going right down to the emergency exit at the front of the screen, obviously just next door to the... To the vomitorium, yes. ...which he then tentatively opened. If attempting discretion, he was unsuccessful, for this was singularly the most suspicious behaviour I have ever witnessed. He then raised his phone... And the horrifying truth was revealed. What do you think he was... I'm just going to pause at this. What Don't, do you think he... Please tell me he wasn't filming the... No, he wasn't He wasn't filming anyone. I don't know. What was he doing? He was collecting Pokemon. 
He was what? John said... Oh, Poke- I see. Fine. He says, cast your mind back to the middle of 2016. Yeah, I remember Pokemon... Is it called Pokemon Go? Go, yes. Pokemon and the Go. two weeks when half the planet seemed obsessed with this augmented reality game. That's right. Apparently it's still a thing. After presumably catching himself an Odeonamon, other cinemas available, he disappeared through the exit and presumably left the cinema altogether. Cube bemused gasps from those of us who understood what had just gone down. To the best of my knowledge, he didn't return. And based on the intensity with which he carried out his mission, I'd speculate he bought a ticket for no other reason than to walk into the screen, catch a Pokemon, and then leave. So my question to your bad selves is the following. Should entering a cinema screen with no intention of watching a film be a code of conduct violation? Yes. There you go. Okay. I mean, of course. But if you buy a ticket, you can... Pres- yeah, but it doesn't matter. When you get into the cinema, you still have to behave like all the other patrons, not walk up and down chasing Pokemons with your lighty-up phone. If you want to see the Code of Conduct, it's on our website, bbc.co.uk slash wittertainment. Doesn't somebody have to put the Pokemon there in the first place? Doesn't that mean that somebody... Well, it's rather- all done by algorithms and things like that. No, no, but, but, but sorry, but isn't there a thing... I, it's a while ago since I knew people who were playing this game, but... Wasn't there a thing that you know whole, that, that somebody can allocate a monument as being part of it, but it has to be? I mean, because, because if somebody did that in a cinema screen, then that's a malicious, that's malicious Pokemon. Isn't that one of the characters? I don't know. I just anyway, if anyone else has seen Pokemon, which you have to go into a cinema and into a particular screen to collect, do you think uh, there's one in the it. House of Commons? A Pokemon? Yeah. Do you think at any point any of the you know, any of the dignitaries or the MPs whip out, they have to suddenly, suddenly, you know, in the middle of some very important debate. It would be quite fun to know that. It would be fun to know if there were any. Uh, should we steer away from Parliament or do you want to make some more comments about that? Well, there were non-party, there were no, non-parties then. Well, it, it was, yeah, OK, that's interesting, though. It depends. OK, if there are Pokemon in Parliament or Pokemon in any particular cinema, uh, we would like to find out. Maybe it's just this one cinema. Are you ready for the box office top ten and I'm the as excitement? as ready as I will ever be. OK, number ten is Fist Fight. Oh! OK, before you go any further, Jim in London. Yes. Finally, the moment to put my theory into practice. When Mark speaks very highly of a movie and then others heap praise on it too, he has on occasion expressed concern that some going to see it may have their expectations set so high that they end up deeply disappointed. Yeah. Surely there must be an equal and opposite effect. I have been waiting with fingers crossed for a film that receives an utterly scathing review from Mark. Surely such a film couldn't possibly be quite as awful as Mark portrays it to be. Consequently, I would be overjoyed to find merit and entertainment where none was expected. Yes. So I was delighted when Mark described Fistfight as crass, crude and like being hit in the face with a wall of nails. (laughs) What I actually said was like with a wall and then you said of nails. I went to see it confident in the logic of my theory and feeling smug about how smug I would feel after the movie. And I can report that Mark is mistaken. Fistfight is crass and crude and like being hit in the face by a wall of nails (laughs) at the same time as being pummeled in the stomach with a wrecking ball and all the while having your feet grated by the athletes who are able to move a brush back and forth with astonishing speed on a curling rink. Very good. And then losing your keys. It comfortably (laughs) passed the six I feel violated test. It's quantum, baby. (laughs) Anyway, presumably you you stand by that? I stand by that, yeah. It's just awful. John Wick Chapter 2, is it number nine? Well... I, I enjoy John Wick Chapter 1 more. Um, we've had many people write in and say that actually what they really liked is that this cranks it all up and this goes more into the kind of the underground world and you gave me a coin last week and I still haven't seen uh, Peter Allen, so I haven't yet been able to deliver that hug. Oh, really? No, no, I haven't seen him. I mean, I will. I will find him and I will hug him as Liam Neeson. He's probably 
seeing you and, and running away. Running yes, but I've been carrying the coin around ready to do it. So I thought it was I, I thought it was okay, but I was slightly disappointed. I know some of our uh, some of our listeners weren't, but I did very much enjoy hearing you talk to Keanu and him saying that everything was quantum, baby. Yeah, and you can still hear that in the podcast. It's still available uh, for that interview. And I still I still think it's worth mentioning that I think it's the only trailer for a movie that includes the final dialogue of the movie in the trailer, <laughs> which is genuinely... And actually, it doesn't spoil anything. <laughs> really? So there's the, there's the thing. So uh, John Wick Chapter 2 is at 9. Lion is at 8. Yeah, loved it. Saw it twice, wept both times, thought it was wonderful. Uh, Hidden Figures is at number 7. The thing about Hidden Figures is that for for all the, the sort of liberties that it takes and for all the, its sort of, you know, melodramatic contrivances, it's just such a positive, charming, uplifting film that you'd have to be really hard-hearted not to be won over by it. It, it is almost the definition of a feel-good movie. And that's a definition which is usually misused. When people talk about feel-good films, they generally mean flimsy and silly. And it's, it, it, Hidden Figures isn't any of those things, but you do come out of it feeling good. Uh, you do. And uh, Rosalind, on this email... I've been, I've been recommending loads of people to see Hidden Figures. I'm amazed at how, how few people seem to be going to see it. I mean, clearly it's in the chart, clearly yeah. it's been Oscar-nominated. And what, what, um, why do they not... Why does the idea not grab them? When you say go see it, because it's what, what, what doesn't grab them about? I think very few movies actually... There have been, been, like, Fifty Shades penetrates people's mind, uh, La La Land penetrates people's mind, it gets through the, the media blurb. Kong, Island, uh, Kong Skull Island will probably do the same. I think Hidden Figures has just drifted just a little bit. So uh, we need to tell people... Uh, go see it, because if you if you want to go see something in which you will come out thinking, I am happier and as a result... And a better effort. person. You actually yeah, will come you out will. a better person. Plus, it's a story that I didn't know anything about. You you may well have done no. it, because you're more science you know, So you, you didn't, didn't either. OK, fine. So it, they were genuinely hidden figures. Rosalind says, I'm a long-standing member of the church, but with two small children, I don't often get to the cinema. I usually have to wait for them to become available in other mediums. Mm-hmm. This past weekend, I had a rare opportunity to take my eldest called Elizabeth, who is eight, to the cinema. After carefully reading the BBFC Insight page, I chose well to take done. her to see Hidden Figures. It's a PG, I think. Yeah, but well done for actually bothering to carefully read it because we have always encouraged people to do that if you're, you know, taking younger viewers. Particularly when, you, when it's PG in 12A, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, you know, it really does. Elizabeth, aged eight, is space mad. Her favourite TV show is Cosmos, and for her eighth birthday, she chose Co- to go and see Professor Brian Cox's current tour. It Cosmos, not the Carl Sagan Cosmos. Well, I don't know if there's another type of... Maybe they've got is that, that, that box. Is there another one? I don't know. That's the only one I know. Is like Carl Sagan, Mysteries of the Cosmos. Why am I standing on windswept Scotland? Even at her tender age... She is a new voice, that voice. <laughs> Even at her tender age, she has already suffered from the prejudice of others who think that being female means that there are things that she can't or shouldn't be interested in. Comforting a seven-year-old who's in tears because she's been told by her classmates girls aren't allowed to be scientists is not fun, says Rosalind. So this movie seemed made for her. From the very beginning, she was enthralled. She was scared by the attitude of the policeman in the first scene because there's a a moment where the three women are stopped by a a racist cop who... But it then turns into... There's a, there's a lovely denouement to that scene, yes. isn't there? Yeah. He decided at that point she was going to watch the entire movie Sat on My Knee, but the whole story captured her imagination from beginning to end. In the car on the way home, we had a very interesting conversation about racism and sexism, about how our attitudes can make a difference and how we must fight any attempt to make us or anyone else appear to be lesser just because of the colour of our skin or our gender or because who we've chosen to marry. As a female engineer, says Rosalind, 
who's made a professional career of ignoring prejudice and battling on regardless. I was really happy to have this opportunity to discuss these things with my daughter. As for the film itself, I think it's best reviews that the first thing Elizabeth said when we left the cinema was that she wanted to watch it again, and I'll be happy to watch it with her. Brilliant. Isn't that brilliant? Isn't that actually what you really want? from a movie to that that's fantastic it's, and it's a very rare feeling to actually come out of a movie and think I could walk straight yeah. back in again now. no I agree and I in fact you know I, I would happily watch Hidden Figures again and, and I should point out also um, I do think uh, that Kevin Costner as well is very good in it I know it's a sort of secondary yes, yeah. role but I you know I'm a, I know that some people are very sniffy about Costner but I think he's good uh, Fifty Shades Darker is at six <laughs> uh, Moonlight is at five I love Moonlight, and it's you know wonderful to see a film like that uh, you know in the top ten. When you consider that it cost very little money, it was a labour of love. Barry Jenkins has done such a brilliant job. It is a film which cannot be described by a plot synopsis, which makes it sound like a very very different movie about you know grim lives and drug addiction. It is a portrait of uh, a man told in three periods of his life, from uh, boyhood to adulthood. It's moving and sensuous and delicate and vibrant and thrilling and wonderful. And as I said when I reviewed it the first time around, I just ran out of adjectives with which to describe how brilliant it was. Um, and I would encourage anybody to go and see it because it is a film of universal appeal and it's as just as a piece of filmmaking, it's utterly breathtaking, but it's also very true and honest and heartfelt and rich. And the music in it is the the use of music in it is just brilliant. I loved everything about it. Tom in Brighton, I wouldn't say that Moonlight is now my favourite film, but it is unquestionably one of the best films I've seen and one of the worthiest Best Picture winners. By the way, it was it went in at 10 mm-hmm. a couple of weeks back, then then left the chart. And has gone back in as a result, yeah, because it was... Back in at five. And I have to say, so this is a really silly thing to say, but there's a print advert for it, which has got a whacking great quote from me on it. Um, from a written review that I did of it. And I, I, I very rarely get quoted on posters, usually because almost nothing I say is quotable. Um, and no, I would imagine most of your stuff also is too late because they like to yeah, put no, stuff on the posters and yours go... No, actually, that, 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 that's almost certainly a thing. But it was, one, it was one of the very... And usually when you see anything quoted, but it makes you wince because you think... That's, what did you say? What's your well, well, the thing was, it was about... It wasn't like a couple of phrases. It was like a paragraph. It was like literally a paragraph of stuff. And I thought, actually, I'm very proud of that. Anyway, so Tom uh, says, one of the worthiest Best Picture winners, I appreciated the slow pacing and how, contrary to Hollywood norms, the viewer was trusted to follow events and fill in blanks. It made for a more rewarding experience, perhaps because I quickly came to care about the characters. I found myself flinching and looking away during some of the scenes in part two, even though I've sat through much more graphic violence in other movies without batting an eyelid. On leaving the cinema, I literally felt spellbound, like I'd been like I'd seen or lived life through another's eyes for those two hours. That's a feeling I've got from some books before, but it's a testament to the artistry of Barry Jenkins that for the first time in my life, a movie was to produce it too. Brilliant. What a lovely phrase about that thing about living somebody, you know, seeing life through somebody else's eyes. Amy J. Johnston is a, uh, is a long, um, a beautiful email, but contains this says, uh, I felt like I was shallow breathing through the whole movie. This is, the, this is the love story that America should be talking about. It ain't all music and dancing, it's complicated. You can see this plainly without any words on screen. Everything in Moonlight is complicated. The physicality of each of the three leads illustrates this and is heartbreaking. You see the weight of so much on their shoulders and in their good teeth. 
Moonlight is beautiful in its own weight. It feels like a novel. So that's genuinely, coincidentally, two people making yeah. the point that it feels like it stays with you like a novel. Yeah. Um, and Stuart Baker, a few weeks ago, I, I had the pleasure of seeing Moonlight, but thought I'd missed my chance to share my thoughts with the show because he's back in the top ten. <clears throat> Excuse me, I couldn't miss my opportunity. What a fantastic piece of art Moonlight is, a truly wonderful coming-of-age film that's deeply moving and personal. <clears throat> Excuse me again. It's beautifully shot, almost woozy and dreamlike in parts. All three actors that play Chiron are fantastic, along with moving performances from Mahershala Ali and Naomi Harris. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I couldn't agree more. It's so wonderful that people are being swept away by it and the way they are. And it's also important to remember that it's a, you know, it's a small movie. I think you said when you were talking to Barry Jenkins, Naomi Harris did her, did her three role. Days. Three days. Unbelievable. And it's, it's so good. And just... It, it's everything about it, and it's not... I mean, although when the, the email said a worthy Oscar winner, it's not a worthy film, although it is, you know, it it is, but it isn't. It's so... It's, you know, it is... A, it, as a piece of filmmaking, as a piece of art, it's just absolutely mesmerising. Uh, Lewis Dunn on the Pokemon, how do they turn up in movies, Yeah, as in the cinema? The Pokemon... Dear adults, says Lewis, okay, yes, the Pokemon done. randomly appear anywhere. You can assign landmarks as Pokestops that give you Pokestop, items. Pokestop. But the Pokemon it. can appear anywhere. Still bad form to enter a cinema to catch Pokemon, unless, of course, it's one of the 20 Pokemon films, in which case playing the game is considerably better time. <laughs> I guess if you've gone to see one of those, then... Yeah, then fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, OK, so top three... Oh, no, so Moonlight at five, Sings at four. Which I enjoyed. Viceroy's House is at number three. Which I liked. Uh, actually, I think more than some people did. I was surprised to see some sniffiness about it. I think that what Gorinda Chada has managed to do is to take a really complicated uh, story and uh, try and tell it in a way which is very populist, which is very, very uh, understandable, which has a number of tropes which an, a, an audience will connect with. And also, I mean, it has a couple. Uh, there was there was a piece um, critical of it that said that it was a film which which didn't hold uh, the Brits to to blame for anything at all, which is just patently nonsense. It's a film. It's quite clear that the villains of the piece are the, the Brits and Churchill, and Churchill in, in, particular. in particular. So you know, anyway, no, I I enjoyed it. I I thought it was uh, I thought it was actually a, a very good piece of populist filmmaking. Uh, Rajesh Sharma uh, on this email, which he begins this email, Dear Nehru and Jinnah, which is, I suspect, an email he'd never thought he'd actually no, 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 An email uh, we never thought we'd get. Uh, I went to see Viceroy's house with my wife and 13-year-old son on Sunday at our local world of Sydney. The story of India's partition is personal to us. My mother grew up in Lahore and had to leave for Delhi because of partition. I went to the movie with mixed views. The reviews are varied and I wasn't certain if I would enjoy it. However, I found the movie captivating. Good. Yes, the story is incredibly broad, and the fact that the story takes place over a short period of time means that the historical context is only referred to in parenthetical asides. Very good. Well done, Rajesh. Or in politicians lecturing each other. However, as the movie progressed, I was caught up more and more in the various stories, and when, at the end, the full cost of partition became clear, I struggled to commode my commodian blubbing. Unlike Simon, I'm glad the story didn't contain reference to the Nehru Mountbatten affair. This would have made the story a little white mischief than a story about the birth of two nations. I didn't wish it was there. It just seemed odd to completely ignore. Well, didn't it, you say that, that? Didn't Gillian Anderson say that it just they could not put it in there because they were yes because they, yeah. they wouldn't have been allowed to yeah. anyway. The one false note says Rajesh, which I think we were alluding to last week without spelling it out. Yes. The one false note was the boundaries for oil part, which seemed to suddenly come in as an attempt to turn <laughs> the story into a geopolitical thriller. It was out of place and jarred me out of the story. 
which I think is right. Apart from that, uh, the movie was engaging and moving. My 13-year-old in particular gave it 9 out of 10 and has, at least for now, stopped asking why he can't sneak into Logan. Well, And that's terrific, and it does demonstrate that Gorinda Chada has actually pitched the movie exactly as she had intended to. If a 13-year-old can watch that and enjoy it and understand it, when, let's face it, that is a very, very complicated uh, chapter of history then she's done something right. Uh, on the subject of Cosmos, Nick in Washington State says, Neil deGrasse Tyson has made a series called Cosmos in oh. honour of Carl Sagan's original. Okay. I'm surprised Robin hasn't said that in your ear. Yeah. You... Well, he didn't, because he didn't know. He let the side down. He's listening to Radio 2. Uh, uh, so, Lego Batman movie, is it two? Which I think... Yeah, we, you know, loads of jokes. And Logan, is it number one? I mean, I was really impressed by Logan, and uh, I, I hadn't expected to be quite as knocked out by it as I was. It is... You know, it's an X-Men movie for people who aren't crazy about X-Men movies. It's absolutely a character study. It's not a film about uh, superheroes. It's a film about ageing and regret. Um, it's much more of a Western than it is uh, a Superman film. We get the references to Shane all the way through. There, You've seen it, right? No, I have not seen it. You, sh you, you should do because it's, it is it is genuine. I know people always say, this. oh, it's not the superhero movie you expect, and then you watch it and then it is the superhero movie you expect. But it isn't. It really is genuinely doing something interesting with those characters and it's occupying a, a world of its own that means it does stand alone. And I say that as somebody who is really baffled by the timeline because not of the, you know, we're watching the other X-Men movies. I really do have to remind myself, sorry, where are we? You know, which... It's like a bit of Inception. Sorry, whose dream are we in at the moment? I'll probably have to go and sit on my own because the ceramicist here indoors doesn't like kind of slashy facey things. There is slashy facey there violence is, in it. Uh, there really is. And and the and children are busy or abroad. Okay. I might just have to go and sit on my own. Are they are, are the kids not cuz No, 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 they're up for it. Just busy. Oh, okay, fine. In that case, go and see it on your own. At your particular favourite cinema where you would be threatened by <laughs> drug dealers on the phone. Judith says, last week, prompted by Mark's positive review, I went with slight trepidation to see Logan. I should say I have no particular interest in superhero films and as an older female member of Clergy Corner, I'm probably no-one's idea of the target audience. Anyway, I thought it was terrific. The film yeah. created an almost tangible atmosphere of rage and dark despair. The music was chillingly effective and the violence was visceral and properly shocking. I had to look away quite a bit. Yeah. But amidst all the carnage, there were moments of humour, reflection and unexpected tenderness that I thought was genuinely moving. And for that, huge credit must go to Hugh Jackman, Patrick Stewart and Daphne Keane for their excellent performances. Someone last week complained about the bad language as unnecessary, but for me... The opposite was true. I thought the language was utterly appropriate to mirror the pain and disintegration of the characters and the brutality of their world. If I were to talk about Logan in a sermon... Well, you never know, says Judith. Yeah. I have no shortage of themes. Ageing and mortality, trauma and regret, the difficulty of living with the things that cannot be undone and the redemptive power of love. Thanks for recommending something I wouldn't have gone to see. Otherwise, best wishes. I mean, the music is really terrific. There is one bit in which we're in a sort of chase sequence in which I suddenly realised that we're listening to jazz piano and sort of weird uh, percussion, which is ex exactly what you wouldn't expect in uh, in that kind of movie. It, it, it's remarkable. And I say that, as I, again, I'll say it as somebody who in the past has felt disconnected from the, the X-Men films. This just felt like a standalone film in and of itself. And it is... It's a Western. And just briefly, what do you think of this comparison? Uh, Matthew in Christchurch. 
As in the New Zealand version. Yeah. I'm not a uh, fan of superhero movies. I was completely surprised when Logan turned out to be one of the best films I've seen in a long time. I think this movie will be mentioned in the same breath as Sicario and No Country for Old Men, as the tension was as taut as a bowstring throughout and the action scenes were suspenseful, painful, genuinely disturbing and gave me a sense of real peril. I have seen on Twitter that it has been referred to as No Country for X-Men. Nicely done. And you can, that's a pitch, isn't yeah, it? That's, that is, that's yeah. a movie pitch. Child 2 has just been communicating with me yes. to report that during her graduation ceremony, yes. Child 1 and Child 3 were catching Pokemon. Oh, really? Because apparently the venue was a Pokestop. There we go. And so they had better things to do than to, <laughs> than to applaud just, everyone. That is they're all just rewarded. terrible. It's the kind of thing that brothers and sisters yeah. would do. I would have applauded, but I was too busy chasing... Scheherazade, no. or whoever it was. <laughs> um, OK, mail at bbc.co.uk. You can text 85058. Uh, now let's talk Kong Skull Island. Uh, you, I think you could probably say it's the biggest release uh, of the week. Find out what Mark thinks in just a moment. First, here's a clip from the film, just ahead of our conversation with Brie Larson, featuring Brie, with Samuel L. Jackson, Tom Hiddleston, Mark Evan Jackson, and first, John C. Riley. Yeah, you smell that? That's death. What the hell is this place? This is what's left of Kong's parents. I've taken enough photos of mass graves to recognize one. The crash site's just on the other side of this valley. We'll cross through and make it to the highest point west. Uh-huh. This place is a real no-no, sir. We need to be going to the north side right now. And you're welcome to do that, my man. By yourself. And that was a clip from Kong Skull Island. I'm delighted to say Brie Larson, one of, one of the movie stars, is with us. Brie, hello, how are you? Hello. Good afternoon. I still just can't believe people call me a movie star. <laughs> really? Why? You know, doesn't that sound like rather larger than life? I'm just a person. I've just seen you in a movie which was pretty larger than life. So That's true. That's and true. I saw you at the Oscars, so that kind of makes you a movie star. And I saw you last year and you won an Oscar. So by every single definition... <laughs> If you won an Oscar, that kind of are you still you still really not used to it? No, no, still not. And I don't think I think it's going to take a while. Like I had a very weird, it, the whole that whole evening, the Oscars evening was very surreal. But one thing that kind of sticks out as being a very surreal but clear moment was being backstage about to do the little press conference thing, and I was holding the Oscar, and I guess I just sounded like a broken record. I kept saying, "I just don't understand. I just don't understand. I just don't understand." And then, like, I heard out of nowhere, like, from the shadows, this, like, cool voice that said, give it five years. And it was Benicio Del Toro. I don't know why he was standing there. And he was, like, leaning very cool up against a wall. But it really stuck out for me. And I felt like it gave me permission that I have five years and who knows, maybe longer to really think about it and figure out what it means for me. So if we come back to you in, say, three years, then you kind of go, yeah, I'm a movie star. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever get fully used to that title. I've been in my body with myself the whole time. I know who I am. I sit on a couch and eat chips. I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not, you know, the rest of it is like a fun persona to play, but we're all human. Okay. But it's cool to be called a movie star. I've wanted yeah. to be an actor since I was a kid. Well, this, this is like uh, the most sort of, it is a big movie star role, isn't it? You're in a Kong movie. So tell us about... Uh, Mason Weaver 
uh, and the the and indeed what you can tell us about Skull Island without spoiling stuff. Okay, sure. So my character's name is Mason Weaver. Very cool name, I think. Um, she's a self-proclaimed anti-war photographer. The film takes place in 1973, surrounding the the Vietnam War, which has just kind of come to an end. Um, and she's looking for her next subject. Um, she's kind of created a bit of a uh, uh, people kind of know her as being a, a bit of a troublemaker because she's not afraid to to risk her life in order to get a good shot. And sometimes that shot isn't always putting this war in the best light. So she sneaks on to this mission, mostly because her name sounds like a boy's name, um, and is able to get on this, this boat. And very quickly, they're like, oh, no, not this girl. Um, because she thinks that there's some sort of government secret thing happening, and she wants to uncover it. And, of course, she has no idea, could have never imagined that that giant thing that they're trying to cover up is actually just a King Kong. <laughs> really? Okay. So, the, so, that's, so that's the giant thing. But it's so much more than Kong, isn't it? It's not just... Right. Well, then they arrive on this island and there's a, a whole lot of creatures that they've never seen before, which is what I think makes the movie so fun is because... You're in the anytime you see a movie in the theater, I feel like they, the concept when it's at its best is you're transported into another world. And this time mm. you really are transported into another world with rules that you don't know what they are until they're there. Suddenly these people are back in the food chain and you have uh, an army f section of this. And then you have a group of scientists and um, you have a group of conspiracy theorists and you have an SAS tracker and you have an anti-war photographer. And they all have very different ideas as to how we should go about surviving in this new atmosphere. Do you have any sense when you're making this film what it's going to look like finally? Because so much of it clearly is, as these monsters don't really exist I'm guessing, you know, because so much is added on and you're, so much of it is reaction shots from you and running away and people being injured and so on. Mm. Who who gives you that sense of what it's going to be looking like? Was it just in your imagination? A lot of it's in your imagination, but I lucked out with this because it was in real location. So at least, at the very least, I knew what the plant life looked like around me. We shot in Hawaii, Australia, Vietnam. So it wasn't all green screen. I think we were only on a soundstage for like a week or two out of the whole six-month shoot, which is quite remarkable for a film like this. But when it comes to reacting to monsters or doing a scene where you're running from one, that's kind of a unique situation that you don't really know how intense you're supposed to be reacting to something like that. And you're kind of trusting that in the end, as you're making all these scared faces, that the CGI people really are going to put something that's scary there and not make you look like a fool. And it's going to be, you know, like a, a giant fluffy bunny rabbit. And suddenly you look scared of something that you wish you weren't looking scared of. I think, I think I'm right in saying in the chronology of this that while you were making this movie, we had Lenny Abrahamson on the show and we were talking about Room. And it, I was thinking it's hard to imagine two more contrasting movie experience in the world of the movie star, which you are, but from the, from that in, the intensity yeah. of making that movie to going off on this extraordinary adventure on three continents. It's true, quite simply from a small room to a very large open space. Um, yeah, and, and as we were making this film, I was doing a word season stuff on the weekends. So it was a very bizarre period of time because during the week, I was covered in dirt and mud and, and dirt under my fingernails and covered in fake blood climbing mountains and jumping off of things and sliding under things. And then Friday night, I'd get dropped off back at the hotel. I'd grab my little rolly suitcase and I'd be on a plane, fly overnight, 
Saturday morning, I'd show up with like a rack of gowns in front of me and have to find something to wear. I'd go to an award show and just be blown away by like how I ended up here. And then Sunday, fly back. And by Monday, I was back in the mud again. Because Lenny Abramson said on the show that that he he was looking for someone who could be uh, entirely natural, who wouldn't give a performance in inverted commas, and who wouldn't disappear off to the trailer and would stay on set. Uh, and and ever since that interview, we was thinking we got to get you on the show. Oh, thank you. You know, because it was clearly such an extraordinary that 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 film, whatever you do in the future, however many great movies you make, that film will still really be part of your persona. Really. Oh wow! Don't you think? You know, I don't know that much about my persona, <laughs> but or the way you are perceived, the way we look at right. you. Uh, we will think of Ma and we'll think of, of that astonishing film. Oh, thank you. I mean, I'm still blown away by how many people that film impacted, and I'm incredibly proud of it. I think it's I think it's incredible what Lenny was able to do with that film. Obviously, an incredibly difficult and sensitive subject matter that I think he was able to kind of find a way with such a light hand um, and make it a metaphor for so many people. You've written and directed before but you have your first feature mm-hmm. uh, coming up which is Unicorn Store and Samuel L. Jackson who is also as part of Kong Island is is in that did you know him beforehand did you use your time together to <laughs> say I'm doing this feature how do you fancy it Sam I'm a movie star come on you know me I got an Oscar well it was after we had finished making Kong that while we were shooting Kong actually is when I was working on the script um, I didn't write the screenplay um a really talented woman named Samantha McIntyre did, but I was helping with some of the tune-ups, and I would Sorry, just what is that? What is that? Mean? Oh, like um, rewrites and kind of moving things around, shaving things down. Like she had created this whole world, but I was just you know I think doing what a director does and kind of clarifying the vision based upon like what I saw in my head. Um, but I was doing that while I was shooting Kong as well, so I'd be in the middle of nowhere sitting on a log. <laughs> so a lot of when I watch the movie now, I kind of remember it as sitting there with my script with a red pen kind of working on this other thing while I was on the set of Kong Skull Island. Um, But by the time we were done with filming, I had become really good friends with Sam. He had become such a great, strong figure in my life. I mean, that was a very wacky period of time, and he was a mentor in many ways. Um, And so then when it came time for me to make my feature, I, I was kind of scared about asking any of my friends to do it because... I didn't want them to feel obligated to, to do it. And so um, there was a part that I, I really would have loved for him to play, but I was too afraid to say something. And he kind of caught wind that I was making this film. Um, and we were towards the end of filming. And um, uh, the next weekend, he showed up and came into the trailer and was like, why are you trying to give my part to other people? And I was like, oh, my gosh, you would want to do this? And uh, he said he would. And he also said that he would go to the press junket, which – I'm now going to use this radio show as a as a way to solidify that he did, in fact, say. Okay, so let's just get that out there. <laughs> yeah, Samuel Sam, Jackson. He will go to the press day. He will. He will do that. <laughs> but that must be very exciting to to not only to have your feature, but actually to have a you know an actor of that who he's a movie star by the way. He I is also. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's undeniably a movie star, and he's also just incredibly dedicated. Like when he commits to whatever it is that he's going to do, it doesn't matter what it is. He is completely off book, like way before you start shooting, totally available for rehearsals, a great collaborator. A lot of things that people of that level don't have to be. 
you don't have to be so flexible. And he is. And I think that that's why I love watching his work because he is he's so dedicated to it still. Uh, we're hoping to have Ben Wheatley on the show uh, in the next few weeks. And there's another and you're in his new movie, which is Free Fire. So mm-hmm. there's another. So there's another movie with, in which you are starring. So more evidence. Um, what can you what can you tell us about that ahead of Ben Wheatley coming on the show? Tell us about Free Fire. Oh. Well, uh, I'm, it's, it's another seventies film, I think. It is, it? Yeah. yeah, but a little later. I think it's techni- I think it's seventy six. I know that because we made um, me and the rest of the cast. We had a Spotify playlist, but the game was that it could only be songs from the year that this film was being made. But Free Fire is great fun. <laughs> uh, it's about a it's about a gun deal that goes wrong. I mean, the the basic idea is. Can you do a, a transaction with, with a, a box of guns in the middle of the room? And can two parties, two groups of men, can they get through it w- without hurting each other in the process? Can they go through the whole, the whole process without actually opening up the box? And, of course, they can't. And I think that then it becomes this gruesome and hilarious situation where they're all trapped in this warehouse. And at any given moment, they could all just let up, but they don't. Um, it, it goes until the end. It's a battle to the death. Uh, we appreciate your time. Uh, Bree, thank you very much indeed. And looking forward to, uh, in fact, we didn't even get on to talk about Captain Marvel. But anyway, we appreciate your time uh, talking about uh, King, uh, Kong Skull Island. Bree Larson, thank you very much yeah, indeed. thank you. Uh, so that's Bree Larson, Larson talking about Kong Skull Island, which I think came out yesterday in some yes. in some territories. In some territories. Well, uh, here. Much correspondence in already. So many people have uh, seen it. Let's talk Kong. Yeah, so basically, I went into this with a sense of trepidation. Dear Kong is directed by Jordan Vogt-Roberts, who directed one of my favourite small indie films of the last few years called um, Last Kings of Summer, which, as you'll remember, I have raved on about ever since it came out a few years ago. I think it was 2013. I just absolutely loved it. It's this very small sort of uh, stand-by-me, like, coming-of-age story with a really quirky sensibility to it. And um, going from that to Kong is even more of a sort of leap than, for, for example, Gareth was going from doing monsters to doing, you know, Godzilla. At least there was a logic behind it. Yes, it made some kind of sense. Um, I have to say that I think that, uh, as with Godzilla, what Jordan Vogt-Roberts has managed to do is to leave his thumbprints all over something which is a huge studio behemoth. I mean, I think it's, you know, $200 million worth of movie. And wow. whenever that sort of thing happens, it's always a wrestling match between you and the film. And I think that there clearly has been a wrestling match, but I think what's really pleasing about it is how much of Jordan Vogt-Roberts is in the film. And also, I have to say, how much I enjoyed it. I know that the reviews have been uh, mixed, um, but I really, really uh, enjoyed it. So uh, we start, uh, there's a thing in 1944, somewhere over the Pacific, which has got a setup, which is basically kind of, you know, hell in the Pacific. Then we move to 1973, Said there, you know, end of the Vietnam War. There's a lovely line early on. Mark my words, there'll never be a more messed up time in Washington. Something which, obviously, you know, when they made the film seemed pertinent, but now seems even more pertinent. So Nixon is in the White House declaring retreat and peace with honour. But John Goodman wants to go to Skull Island because he's he's a bug hunter. He knows that he thinks there's something there. And basically the way they sell it to the military is, look, you know, the Russians are going to be looking there very, very soon, so you have to take it. So the next thing you know, it's Apocalypse Now meets the land that time forgot. And in so many ways, that pitch seems at first absurd, but actually, as the film goes on, makes uh, a lot more sense. So 
right from the fact that they are literally coming out of the Vietnam War. I mean, obviously, you've got the jukebox soundtrack, very much like Apocalypse Now, which has got, uh, you know, White Rabbit, Black Sabbath, Paranoia, which is played very much like Ride of the Valkyrie. Um, when they arrive at the island, the plot demands that they immediately start bombing um, because it, they want to shake up what's under the ground and find out whether there's anything under the ground. So it is essentially sort of transposing all that stuff into uh, into Skull Island. Uh, this central character, obviously called Conrad. I mean, these things are, you know, they're, they're, they're writing it sort of quite large. Tom Hiddleston saying Kong was just defending his territory, which when you're coming off the back of a, you know, story about Vietnam... Um, and, you know, fighting the VC and all that sort of stuff. So all these kind of things, the Viet, Cong. the Viet Cong, are all written into, and Sam Jackson saying this is one war we're not going to lose. So all that stuff is written into the fabric of the film itself. Then what you have is um, the, the, well, let's call them the monsters for the purposes of, of this argument. One of the things that I've heard people say is that you see Kong too early on and it's not a huge reveal. I actually think this is very deliberate because I was very pleased to see Kong early on and indeed to see the other creatures early on because what the film does is it has a monstrous delight in them. Clive Barker once said that one of the big problems with monster movies was that in the first reel you see a foot, in the second reel you see a hand, in the third reel you see a silhouette, and in the fourth reel you see the whole thing for four seconds before it's blown up by an atom bomb, despite the fact that actually we all go to watch the monsters. Now, in terms of... When we have the monster action stuff, which is, you know, Kong, these kind of lizard creatures, you know, spiders, all this sort of stuff. One of the things I like most about it is the editing pace is a lot slower than is common nowadays. Michael Bay movies, which cut every half a second, so you can never tell what's going on. These films, these sequences, these special effects sequences are done with a much slower sort of circling, elegiac pace almost that is attempting to capture the beauty of things. There are certain images that really stuck with me, of Kong standing up with the moon behind him and the helicopters coming in, of Tom Hiddleston surrounded by green uh, smoke with the samurai sword, with the, you know, with the flying pieces. All that stuff, I thought, actually, just on a visual level, worked really well. I like the fact that the film was, it seemed to me, to be sort of very cine-literate, not just the apocalypse now and the hell in the Pacific, but there's one moment which... This may well be just me, but there's one shot in it that I thought that is definitely a reference to the post of a cannibal holocaust. There is... That might might be just you. It might be, but it might not. I'm not going to say what it is, but... but, but, but I'll I'll ask this. When anyone watches the film, okay, write in next week and tell me whether you think that's what that was uh, as well. I think that the script has its ups and downs. There are things in the script that are very clunky. There are also things in the script that are very funny. I think the line when they're on the island and they find John C. Riley has got this boat which is made out of a plane and one of the characters says, stop shaking your head, says, it looks like it's made out of pure tetanus. I laughed about that for about five minutes. Um, when John C. Riley says, did we win the war? And the answer is, which one? I mean, I thought all that stuff, all that kind of political playfulness was woven well enough into the story that it didn't just seem to be something that was tacked on. And this is, you know, I have I, I several hands involved in the, in the screenwriting, obviously. And I enjoyed it. I was never bored. I thought that the moments of spectacle were properly spectacular. Yes, there are things that are creaky. Yes, there are compromises that are that are obviously to do with making something that is part of a, you know, an ongoing, you know, huge studio franchise. And yes, there are moments in it in which you can start to feel that it's tending much more towards the sort of the ordinarily generic. But there are also things in it that are that are so odd and so peculiar and so quirky 
Um, the way in which the slow motion is used to give a sense of scale. And so incidentally, I saw it in 2D. There is a three, is that right? There? Yeah, and IMAX, I saw it in two. Okay, I saw it in two. Um, uh, and I did think that it had that sense of scale. I thought there were moments, there were, there were you know, monster moments that worked really well in terms of scale. And that's always the most difficult thing to achieve. I thought you did think these, these things are huge. Yeah. And I also thought that just from the level of, you know, um, enjoyable, uh, in, playful sort of cross-generic messing, as I said, that central idea of taking uh, Land That Time Forgot and Apocalypse Now and putting them all together and seeing what comes out of the mix actually worked rather well. So having gone in with a sense of great trepidation, I thought it was really good fun. I was surprised by how much I liked it. And I'm very pleased. I think I like it more than you do, for example. And, uh, I mean, it may well be that I'm seeing nerdy stuff in there that isn't there, but it's like there's a wonderful thing with Roger Ebert in that Life Itself documentary. He's talking about the Roger Ebert screenings, and they say they show a film. He says, here's what happens. Every year we show a film, and at any point in the thing, somebody can shout out, stop, and we'll look at the film, and we'll find something new in it that we've never seen before. It's not there, but we'll find it anyway. I think uh, it is true that there are some moments that are funny. The script, in general, is woeful. Absolutely. Particularly, okay, I didn't I think th so, but... I think, it, it, you know, it's... Cr I mean, I just thought it was cringy. And I think I I enjoyed it enormously. So I... Oh, so you did enjoy it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, and, fine, and fine. And the monster stuff is terrific. And the monster the monster battles, which you were talking about, are some of the best I've ever seen. So I thought that, I thought that was brilliant. I'm just not sure, because if they wanted to have that Vietnam meets Kong idea, which is a great idea, which by and large works... OK, oh, I'm glad why, you like the fine, fine. Why do you put Tom Hiddleston as the lead character? If that had been uh, a, a, a grizzled American vet, I think it would have worked much better. And why is he not wearing a shirt? Be well, because he's Tom Hiddleston in The Land That Time Forgot. You know, Doug McClure. I mean, OK, let me ask you, yeah. John, John C. Riley. because what, what did you think of John C. Riley sort of channeling Dennis Hopper? I, I didn't like that story. As soon as he arrived, I thought it became a farce. Okay. And, and I thought it really undercut the sense of peril and sense of genuine threat that had been there. And as soon as John Riley turns up, you go, oh, OK, it's just for jokes now. We're just, we're just supposed to have a laugh. So I got what he was doing. I just wish he hadn't been, <laughs> wish he hadn't been doing it. OK. You see, I, you had mentioned this to me before, and I have to say I didn't feel that. I, I didn't feel that un it unbalanced it and tipped it just over into silly, wacky comedy. It wasn't like a Judge Dredd sidekick. I mean, the yeah. Stallone... When, he, when he turns up, I just thought, you are kidding. It's what well, is this going to be a farce now? But you know, from now to the end, we're, we're just playing it for laughs. So, and we should talk okay. about Samuel L. Jackson. Okay, the other, the other side. Yeah, okay, of the news. Fine. okay. There, are, there's an awful lot of correspondence. Okay, many, right. many emails about. So we'll talk Kong Skull Island, the other side of the news. Thanks for your emails. If you've been to see it today, mail at bbc.co.uk. What else are we going to look at? Uh, we're going to look at L. We're going to look at Love Witch. We're going to look at IT and much, much more. How are you doing, Mark? You're I'm doing good. Really yes. Fine. What yeah. I particularly like was that, that that we were starting to have a sort of you know a a a an exchange of views about yes. Kong at the end of that because it's funny because I like it more than you do, and I uh, don't. Di and I, no, don't I know. I know it. you don't dislike it. No, no, no. But I just, I, you know, I think thought there were there were there were joys in it that that I'm not one starring it or even two starring it. No, because that would be silly. Yes, but I wouldn't four star it either.
that too would be silly. Yeah, so you'd three-star it. I'd three-star let's, let's be honest, star ratings are nonsense. They are why on earth are we wasting I know, them? why would we even think about it? Um, Oliver Maynard, I just came out of a screening of Kong Skull Island at yes. the terrific Exeter Picture House. Couldn't keep my excitement in after a lot of cinema trips to see some weighty, politically and socially charged films, which I adored and feel deserve all the plaudits they get. It was refreshing to come out of a truly exhilarating, entertaining movie. KSI, as it's been called, is an entertaining, sumptuous... This is being called by no one at all. ...thrill ride for the eyes and ears. It's a film that knows exactly what it wants to be and sets its formula up well. Big, smashy, grabby animals versus other big, smashy, grabby animals <laughs> versus humans and big, smashy animals and humans versus humans. It owes a big debt, I think, to 2014's Godzilla. Firstly, it achieves the same sense of awe carried out very nicely here with lots of close-ups followed by wide shots to reinforce the sense of scale. KSI's humour is nailed from its initial The White House line, which you just mentioned. Uh, then the comic beats of John C. Riley. This film soared through the sixth laugh test, a surprisingly rewarding film. Adam Scogland, Eden Prairie, Minnesota. I'm writing this the morning after seeing an early screening of Kong Skull Island. It's not without flaws. Good Lord, is it not without flaws? But I found it overall enjoyable, in spite of the annoying, clichéd Sam Jackson dialed up to a empty, stupid character <laughs> who was unfortunately played by the great Sam Jackson himself. <laughs> My goodness, Sam Jackson. They could just as well have had him carrying signs which say, Environment Good Mankind Banned, while screaming... Uh, bad. While screaming, I'm only here to make the already impossible mission even impossibler <laughs> so that we can drag this out for two hours and show off some more great CGI. It's a great action film uh, if he's not in it. As it stands, so-so uh, and perhaps worth a matinee. OK. Uh, Jonathan Mock. Uh, it's not terrible, just terribly disjointed. Starts off well and plays the con card far too early, then goes soggy after that which virtually no plot or story other than everyone has to make it to the other side of the island. Too many slow-mo, fast-mo shots and rapid edits that put me in mind of Hot Fuzz, which is great. Oh, no, sorry, too many slow-mo, fast-mo... Edits. Oh, fine, Slow-mo fine. Slash fast mo shots. Rapid edits that actually put me in mind of Hot Fuzz, which is great in the context of a comedy film, unintentionally funny when it's I thought... played straight-faced and trying to riff off the more meatier films like Apocalypse Now. The rapid edits, I thought, well, I think that's not... I think the slow-mo thing, but actually the editing pace when you compare it to Michael Bay is very different. Um, Martin Allen in Aylesbury. Kong Skull Island has none of the wonder of the 1930s original, nor any of the heart of the Peter Jackson remake. To this day, the last half hour of the remake brings my teenage daughter to tears every time. This film is so full of monster movie cliches and obvious plot points, you could write a checklist and tick them all off. One, Botley Mand of... Motley Band... Botley Mand. A Botley Mand. Botley Mand of Geeks and Guns Go to Strange Island. Two, someone has a secret. Three, lots of people will be killed with jump scares. Four, the wrong decisions will be made despite common sense, etc., etc., and some which have been redacted. I came out of the film and realised I couldn't name any of the characters bar Samuel L. Jackson's, and this was only because his name was nearly always visible on his uniform. Uh, Tom and Bree do their best, but even they ignore their own advice. For example, Tom, I can't remember his character's name, warns the group about the hazards of biting insects and disease, then wanders around in a T-shirt. Precisely my point. <laughs> Tell us again, Grandad. <laughs> 
The more I watched, the more I realised this was a complete rehash of other films. Apocalypse Now, Jurassic Park 1 and 2, Jurassic World, Congo, to name but a few. If you decide to go and watch the film, then make sure you stay to the end of the credits. I was tipped off by the church. There you go, I'm off to bed now. I will not be having nightmares. Georgina says, my word indeed. My expectations totally blown out of the water. Kong was stunning. A few times I consciously noticed the beauty of a shot, not just the design or scenery, which were in parts magnificent, there we but go. the whole package captured perfectly. And the first sequence with the helicopters when they reached the island was phenomenal cinema. It also helped that uh, there were good comedic moments reminiscent of Die Hard and a plot to hold my attention. Now, as much as I'm a fan of Hiddleston, and as well as he did in this film, especially when being heroic, I wasn't quite convinced of his initial character. I didn't buy the backstory. I didn't feel it in his performance. He's supposed to be an SAS officer or something like that. Or something like that. Something like that. But the friend, he, I, he, he takes a bunch of people out in a in a pool room fight at the beginning, so we know he's tough, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. But still, he should have been American. But the friend I went with, in fact, if in fact, if he'd been playing a you know an old country singer with a drug problem, that was that was. He, I think he, I think that was terrific. Well, yeah. interestingly, he's obviously not not doing an American accent because he can't because we know he can. Exactly, exactly. He absolutely can. This new take on King Kong mythology works for me and shows just what a reboot reboot with newer technology uh, available should look like. Make sure you see the end credits. Thank you, Georgina. And Steve McCabe uh, from uh, Pucky Coey, south of Auckland, but not South Auckland in New Zealand. So yes. it's very, very important. Clearly a lot of snob value there. You don't want to be South Auckland, but South Auckland. Of Auckland. Hove actually. Cool. Let's face it, Kong Skull Island is poo. It's a <laughs> it's a trawl through Vietnam War film cliches down to run through the jungle on the soundtrack and the casual racism with dinosaur monster frozen chickens thrown in for good measure. I got a free ticket, but I would like my money back. Says Steve. I I must the uh, I'm not quite sure what he means by the casual racism, but there is some there are some indigenous people that turn up halfway through, and I thought that was I've. I, Felt uncomfortable. Okay. However, the monster stuff was utterly terrific, <laughs> and which is what people will be going to see, uh, to see it for. And interesting to see in future weeks whether you either think the monsters come in too early, uh, as some people do, and because it is surprising. I mean, even if you think it's a good idea, when it comes in, like in the first five minutes, you go, "Oh, what tradition says, not for an hour at least, please." Yeah. Uh, Mayo at bbc.co.uk eight five zero five eight. You can live stream it because we're looking particularly fine this week. Three uh, thirteen. What else is out? Okay, so L, which is um, a, a really, really difficult film, in as much as it's so contradictory. So it is on one level a very alarming tale of uh, sexual violence and dangerous role play from. Paul Verhoeven, who made Basic Instincts and Showgirls, the latter of which ran into trouble with the uh, with the BBFC for uh, potentially titillatory material in a rape sequence. On the other hand, it is an extraordinary showcase for Isabelle Huppert, one of the most fearless presences uh, in the cinema, who says that the, she describes the film in very Isabelle Huppert as a human comedy with a post-feminist heroine about the empowerment of a woman. Uh, it's adapted from a book O by Philip Jan, and um, it's a French-language film opens with the sound of a violent assault by a masked intruder, which we see initially only fragmentarily, but to which the film then returns obsessively, almost fetishistically. Um, Huppert is a, as a businesswoman, Michelle, who then reacts to the attack, this grotesque attack, um, 
by almost not reacting to it. She seems to be completely self-contained, completely self-possessed. She works, she tells her son, oh, I fell off my bike. She works in a computer game company, she runs a computer game company that make these violent video games that have this sort of sexualized uh, element. And she starts getting obscene texts and messages from her attacker, but she won't go to the police because in her backstory is a really strange thing, which I'm not going to give away to do with her father and a run-in with the police before in which she was betrayed. She refuses to be to take on the role of victim. Instead, what she does is she changes her locks, she learns about guns, and then she begins her own sort of... Uh, her own tracking of the assailant. And the film is very, very controversial because it deals with uh, subject matter that in the past, particularly, if you look at a, a director like Paul Verhoeven, who is an agent provocateur, has been right from back films like The Fourth Man, Basic Instinct, that's even up to, uh, to Black Book. He's a, a, a filmmaker who absolutely takes delight in stepping over lines of political correctness, in being provocative, in sort of, you know, uh, deliberately trying to make the audience feel deeply uncomfortable and it's fun it's it's interesting watching the way in which people have responded to this film some people have called it a black comedy some people have called it a social satire some people have called it a hideously uh, misguided film my own feeling about it is this it was a film that absolutely made me feel deeply uncomfortable about uh, many of its uh, ideas but it was also a film in which Despite the fact that it's directed by Verhoeven, Huppert's presence is so strong, so bold, so overwhelming that it's almost as if Huppert becomes the author of the film itself. And what the film... You can read the film in many different ways, and I'm not going to pretend that there is a right or wrong way to read it. Some people have absolutely loved it, some people have absolutely hated it, and in fact... I understand both of those responses. I have to say, at the end of the day, it was a film that... I was uh, won over by because of Huppert. She is the most mesmerising screen presence. She is this kind of really... She has an extraordinary ability to embody strength and self-possession and uh, defiance and individuality in ways that it's almost... You, know, you cannot think of anybody else doing this film. Interestingly enough, at one point... The production was meant to be being uh, moved from France to uh, to Boston, and they were going to do it. But they wanted to do it with an American film star, and they couldn't get they couldn't get cast, and they couldn't get financing. And Verhoeven has said later on, he was interviewed in Sight and Sound. He said, "You know, anyone I can't imagine anyone in the USA ever, ever having ever gotten away with this." And he says it in that kind of Verhoeven way, which is very sort of provocative. But he's absolutely right. But specifically, anybody other than Isabelle Huppert would never have got away with this. She was Oscar nominated for it, and uh, rightly so. It is an extraordinary performance. It is, I mean, it is. She is mesmerising for every minute that she's on screen. She is utterly mesmerising. The tone of the film itself, as I said, is there's this constant uh, sort of almost Bunuelian thing going on about uh, uh, bourgeois lives and corrupt religion. Can in you explain background. what you mean by that? I mean that you have, like, dinner parties from hell in which it is revealed that under the placid surface of bourgeois society there is broiling corruption. There is, on the television all the time, there's the Pope and there's stuff about religion and there's somebody who's very religious and all these things are revealed to be actually kind of part of a, you know... But all done in a very sardonic, very... Uh, arch, very kind of sarcastic way. As I said, you know, some people have actually d d described this just simply as a black comedy, which is which it can I think misreads it, but it also 
it also accepts that people react to the material differently. So there is no question that on the film itself is very contentious and very provocative, deliberately so, and that is how Verhoeven has made it. And I think, I, you know, you cannot define how people will react to that. But I was won over by Huppert, who just becomes this, this, <laughs> this magnetic force at the centre of the film and actually manages through sheer, I think, well, it's not just presence, it's the brilliance of her performance, to make it a film about the about her empowerment somehow. And I came out at the end of it, I was very, very I, I, I was very, very sort of conflicted about it, but I was also impressed. And uh, I don't think it's something that's going to sort of settle itself down easily. When people sort of refer to that icy, cool surface, then also not taking into account is that Verhoeven is also somebody who's worked quite openly in exploitation. And as I said, he's the argent provocateur and Isabelle Huppert is a force of nature. And if you think of her work in, for example, films like The Piano Teacher, you know, she's somebody who's always kind of pushed boundaries about as far as they will go. If this had been anybody else other than Isabelle Huppert, this would be a very different film. Indeed, it would not exist without her. She is the force at the centre of it. When you Can you just explain, when you said uh, Paul Verhoeven has worked openly in exploitation, just yeah. explain what you mean by Well, that. I mean, you've seen Basic Instinct, right? Mm -hmm. So Basic Instinct is a mainstream thriller, but it's also a thriller which absolutely draws on uh, on exploitation movies. It's a, it's a film in which there is, you know, sex and violence uh, portrayed in a way which, you know, which which, draw, and which draws on, on, on exploitation. If you look back at Paul Verhoeven's back catalogue, you know, through Soldier of Orange and that kind of thing, he's a... Very, he's a mainstream filmmaker. He's also bizarrely, well, not bizarrely. He's also somebody who is very erudite and very artistic. You know, who sort of went to to you know to relearn French in order to be able to do the film in French. And he's you know he's a, he's a really smart guy. But he's he is also a somebody who is absolutely a provocateur and knows that that's what he is. OK, and the other thing I wrote down when you when you started... Sorry, when I was rambling. No, 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 not ramble. Yeah. Uh, uh, when you were talking about what Isabelle Huppert had said, and she said it was a post-feminist something. She's, right? She said that it is it is a human comedy with yes. a post-feminist heroine. What does, what does post-feminist heroine I, mean? I, I, I'm going to say, as far as this is concerned, this is something you will have to ask Isabelle Huppert because there is absolutely no point in getting into what does feminist, what does post-feminist mean. Firstly, because that would be a hideous piece of mansplaining on my account and I am not going to do no, that. No, but asking you what you understand by that. I think quote. that what I understood by it was that she was that I think that what she was saying was that it is it is a film that despite what you might think about its subject matter is actually empowering of its heroine I mean she said very specifically it is about the empowerment of a woman but you can I can also understand how at the same time as you're watching that as you're reading that you know the narrative seems to be working against that so there are just one of those phrases that sounds automatically suspicious. That's all. But because... oh, I do, I'm I'm not suspicious of her saying it. No, no, no. But um, but uh, if someone else but... had said it, maybe you go, hmm, really? Possibly. I don't know. I can't answer that question. What I can tell you is that, as you can see, it is a film which absolutely sets out to bamboozle and sets out to be um to be outrageous and. Uh, sets out to, to wrong foot you and to confuse you. And I don't think it's quite, you know, I've seen a couple of things saying most controversial film of the year, which I think is exactly what it, what it would want. But I, I, I just think when it comes to Uper's performance, it's much, much more than that. It is much, much more than that. 
She is a, she she's a force of nature. You know, she is an extraordinary screen presence. You compare this, for example, to things to come. You know, the Hanson Love film, which was out just recently, in which she's she's just not bad in anything. Uh, so uh, that is a, a wide release. Would that be relatively straightforward? Yes, I or? think. I mean, it's a yeah, Paul Verhoeven film. With I think I think you, you may have to. It may not be on at your local multiplex, but it's it's going to be a it's going to be seeable. Yes, so, and as I said, Oscar nominated. I mean, she was Oscar nominated for Best Actress. Uh, so that is L. What else is out? The Love Witch. So stop oh, speaking. What? I've got a sentence. The Love Witch. I think this is. I think this is for you. Oh is yeah, it? it's a it? it's a black box. Yes. Uh, so it's like um, it's got a pentagram on the front, all very okay. wi- all very witchy, and inside is a scroll. Is this and a glass jar? Is this publicist of the week award is it? Yeah, I think so. And it says love magic, which is slightly revolting. And it's got a cork in it, and that looks like a, a like a, a potion of some kind. Okay. With herbs, and that looks like the frog of. Yeah, I have toad frog- and a frog of newt. No, okay, frog of newt. Yes. Anyway, it looks it looks as though it could be actually demonic. <laughs> so I'm gonna. So you can take that and thank you. If you put that on the on your chair next to you and you go home on the train, yes, because that's what you have. You go down very bad. It, it looks like you? a it looks like a heavy metal box set. Is what it actually it looks does. like. Anyway, that's yours. So anyway, okay. Yes, so saying- the Love Witch, which is uh, the new film from uh, Anne Biller, who directs, who writes, who designs, who edits, who composes. Costume. Generally, everything you can see on screen is there because she put it there. She's a control freak. (laughs) Yeah. So now I would say that the best way of describing this is that it's all that heaven allows, directed by Jess Franco, or it's Vampiros, Douglas Sirk's Vampiros Lesbos. So um, it. it, I should also. I haven't seen any of those. No, but I should also say that that is not how the director would describe it. It exists in a world that looks like the late 60s, early 70s of uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, but in which mobile phones are available. So it's an alternative present or near future, despite the fact that everything about the milieu is, you know, it's, it's a fantastical milieu. So Samantha Robinson is Elaine, who is this white witch, um, Imagine, it's the best way of describing it, imagine a sort of non-domesticated, more independent and fully empowered version of Elizabeth Montgomery's... Oh, uh, Bewitched. In Bewitched, what yes. A show. OK. So she arrives uh, to a, a new apartment after the failure of a previous relationship. She's looking for love, but a very, very specific kind of love. She is a witch. She is a white witch. There are other witches around and they, you know, they have uh, love magic and that kind of thing. <laughs> but she's looking for a very, very specific kind of love, for somebody who will, you know, love her for what she is, but will also be... So the film is full of very arch... Very, very, um, uh, very funny, very knowing conversations about what men and what women want from the world. Suitors abound and many of them fall under her spell. But many, if not most of them, turn out to disappoint and wind up not in a good state. Here is a conversation between her and a friend in a tea shop where somebody is playing a harp in a background. Where were we? (laughs) Oh, uh, men. You said we need to give them what they want. Well, what do men want? Just a pretty woman to love and to take care of them and to make them feel like a man and to give them total freedom in whatever they want to do or be. (laughs) But what about what we want? How are we going to be equals with men if we keep catering to all of their needs? I think that if you want love, you have to give love. 
Giving men sex is a way of unlocking their love potential. You sound as if you've been brainwashed by the patriarchy. Your whole self-worth is wrapped up in pleasing a man. That great line, you sound like you've been brainwashed by the Patrick. It sounds so, as though there's not a lot of cheesecloth in that. A lot of cheesecloth, yes. And uh, and the whole thing is shot with this very, very sort of tactile, you know, celluloid sense. And meanwhile, in the background, there's kind of these Kenneth Anger-style uh, uh, magic sequences. What does that mean? Um... How's the best to describe it? They are like in- incantatory magic sequences with, uh, you know, uh, with ritualistic symbols and, uh, uh, you know, and spells okay. and that sort of thing. When the men start going missing, the police turn up, but even the uh, even the chief of police is not uh, immune to the uh, to, to the spells of uh, the the titular love witch. Now, I really like this film. I thought it was. F- I smiled all the way through it. I thought it was funny and uh, and cheeky and. Uh, uh, and you know, sort of weirdly subversive. But what's interesting is, I have to say that almost everything I like about it is something that the director doesn't particularly like about it. So, for example, I thought it was you know ripe and camp, and I thought it was bathed in a nostalgia for the kind of you know uh, horror and sexploitation movies of the late sixties and early seventies. I loved the sort of physicality. I thought it was joyously parodic. There's uh, an interview with uh, Anne Biller in uh, Sight and Sound magazine in which she says it's not any of those things. It's influenced by Douglas Sirk and Hitchcock. It's not. Camp, it's not parodic that she's not actually interested in uh, Russ Mayer and all that sort of stuff. And I think what's really fascinating about it is two things. Firstly, and also it's being released under the Fright Fest Presents label, which they're a horror, you know, horror festival, despite the fact it's not a horror film, although it has elements of uh, horror stuff in it. And I think it's a really interesting case of trust the tale, not the teller. What filmmakers bring put put into their films and what you get out of your films are two different things. And I think the most important thing here is if you enjoy the film as much as I did and as much as other people I know who felt similarly that it's riffing on those ideas, then it doesn't matter exactly whether or not the director, not just you know director, writer, editor, person who's in total... So control, she might be wrong? No, it's not to do with, with her being wrong. I mean, she knows what film she's made... But the way in which the film plays and the way in which the film is described may not be quite the same thing. I mean, there are the highlights. There's one fantastic sequence in which um, our heroine with the police chief, who I uh, spoke of earlier, um, they're wandering through the through the the sort of you know the countryside, and they suddenly come across this kind of medieval fair in which everyone looks like a me- like a member of the cast of The Wicker Man, and they suddenly have this really strange marriage ceremony that you keep imagining at any moment somebody's going to start building a Wicker Man in the background and set fire to it. So it's or it's it has the same sense of, of hot fuzz, funnily enough, which was referenced earlier and earlier in terms of King Kong. There is that sense of that going along the back. And if I have a criticism at all, it's that it's it's perhaps a little long, but that feels like criticising it for being overindulgent when the film itself is a glorious indulgence. I think it's smart, whether for the right or the wrong reasons. I thought it was smart and funny and I really enjoyed it and I can... It's interesting that people can take different things away from it, that you can read it in many different ways. I just think it's it, it, what you can tell is that the thing that she is deadly serious about is the attention to detail, is getting everything absolutely right, is getting all those things, you know, absolutely in the right place and making sure the film is everything in the mise en everything about it, everything that you see on screen is there for a reason and a purpose, right down to the gaps between dialogue, 
which seemed to me to deliberately mimic an, an older form of cinema. I want to go and see it again because I really, really enjoyed it. The Love Witch. I uh, I do like that idea which you've mentioned before. Which is trust the trust the tale, not the teller. Okay, because sometimes this has come up a number of uh, occasions. We have the teller or some of the tellers on the show, and they tell us this thing. Yeah, you go well. No, I don't think so. I don't think that's what I don't think that's what you've made. I'll tell you the the, the best example of that is um, Lloyd Kaufman, who was in charge of Troma. You know, Troma movies are unwatchably terrible. I mean, they are just beyond awful. And I don't care how much people go, "Oh, they're the new Edward." No, they're not. They're rubbish. But hearing Lloyd Kaufman talk about them is brilliant. Uh, it's time for TV Movie of the Week. Chris Moody says... TV Movie of the Week. Chronicle is very good. LA Confidential and Young Frankenstein are terrific. And The Red Shoes is a bona fide masterpiece for all times. But I'll be watching Room because I haven't seen it and I reckon Mark will pick it too. Daniel Cooper. There's some top-notch films on this week. I reckon The Old Fruit will pick LA Confidential. That's you, I think. Is it? As in Tinker 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 Gold Fruit. Uh, We'll pick LA Confidential, uh, ageing very nicely like a fine wine. But for me, it has to be Room, an utterly astonishing film, heartbreaking, beautiful, bittersweet, tender, devastating and ultimately life-affirming. And previously discussed on this show with Brie Larson. Yes. Amy Jones, I only saw Room recently, was transfixed by Brie Larson's performance. Having loved the book, I was worried it would disappoint, but I needn't have. A surprisingly uplifting film of heroism and survival. i definitely choose this. Paul Hewing says, The Red Shoes is the best film on the list in quite a strong week, but times being what they are, I uncertain, we could do with a chortle. So Young Frankenstein is the best thing. And Gareth Hunt, Kung Fu Panda, because it may keep my daughter quiet and entertained for 90 minutes. <laughs> but Mark will pick Room. Mark Gorman, it's a close race between Room and Young Frankenstein, so don't want drama or comedy. It's Frankenstein by a hump. <laughs> uh, it is a strong week. I can T- help with that hump. What TV hump? movie of the week is... well. I'm, I'm, it's going to be a split decision. I'm going to go for two, OK? Firstly, I'm going to go for The Red Shoes, which is one of the greatest films ever made. This is the Powell and Pressburg, and it is just absolutely wonderful. It is 1.30 in the afternoon on Saturday on BBC Two, so that is a very, very civilised time uh, to be uh, watching it. It's, you know... Funnily enough, I saw the, the Matthew Bourne stage uh, musical, and it was, which I thought was... What musical? And I thought was absolutely wonderful, but it is just such a fabulous film. Plus, I have to say, it's been um, on in our house recently because the good lady Professor Her Indoors was writing something about it for an anthology book. So I have seen it quite a lot recently, and I did a thing about it for BFI Play. It's, it's just wonderful. And Room, because I loved it to pieces... Brie Larson was on the show and it was funny that when you... I did get this feeling that when you were talking to Brie Larson about uh, Kong, you'd much rather have been talking to her about Room on the grounds. Well, you kind of felt that in terms of her character, there was probably more to say about Ma. Well, I think it's I think it's fair to say <laughs> that with, whether you love the film or whether you don't love the film, there is more to discuss in her other projects. So that we... So, yes, there was time to talk about Room, but that she's just directed her first no, movie. No, no, sure, sure. So I think there's only a certain... You know, it's not a... It's not a work of enormous significance, so as opposed to Room. So, therefore, it seems fair enough to spend a little bit of time talking, you know, when she's she's got lots of reaction shots, you know, where she's running away, she's looking scared, you know, she's being held in the hand of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the monster. You know, there's all that, can, but there's, it can only take you so far. Can I ask you something else? The other projects were more interesting. Can I very quickly ask you something else about Kong? Was there, yes. was there any moment in Kong in which you went, <gasps> you know... 
no, not particularly. There were, there, but there were many moments that I, you know, that I really enjoyed, and. Uh, the the helicopter scene going into the island in the first place, when we first get a glimpse of the size of the beast, that's very impressive. In fact, when we were just before I did the interview with Brie Larson, there was a, a technical crew who was showing, uh, you know, the virtual reality when you put the head, headset on, because I've seen your virtual reality of. When oh yes, I've, when I've I've seen it, but I haven't. Yes, I, mean, I am aware of. There's it. a five minute sequence which they've done of Kong in virtual reality where you're sitting in the helicopter. Oh, so wow. And I think we could talk about this because it's first real stuff. So the helicopter is all what, First real. Oh, you mean it's in the... So you're sitting in the helicopter, going into Skull Island, you're going through the storm, and then you see uh, Kong himself attacking. Uh, but you have to look out to the side, and then you see your mate's helicopter being plucked from the sky and thrown to the ground, and then you look the others... It was ab- utterly brilliant. You, you, you did it. You, I watched it in virtual reality. It was quite extraordinary. And is that like in the foyer of cinemas? Um, it'll be in some selected places, I think they're doing. Because, I mean, it was an amazing experience. Because on a very, very different note, um, that film Notes on Blindness, when it played in cinemas, it also played with a virtual reality experience, which was a... Um, which was I think it was six scenes from the film in which, using similar technology to what you're talking about, um, you, the, the film was experienced in a different way. And there, there, was, there was three different versions of the film itself um, to do with, uh, with, you know, sighted or hearing, or, you know, which they, the sound mix was completely different. But apparently the virtual reality experience, which I, I didn't get to see, but I know a few people who did, and they said it was really breathtaking. It was a really fully immersive experience. And I think one of the sequences for it was to do with Im- being in a room of rain because he was imagining what happened was he spatially arranged himself through the sound of sort of water and the sound of of rain. And, I mean, I I do think Notes on Blindness is an absolutely spellbinding work and just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But the virtual reality experience for it apparently was really extraordinary. Yeah, and who knows what they'll be able to do with it. I mean, it was fine for five minutes. Whether I'd want to watch a whole movie in virtual reality, I'm not sure. No, 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 sure. That that word immersive experience, that's right. Utterly extraordinary. And you can imagine how in the right hands yes. that technology could be uh, enormously entertaining. Could be really remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we'll we'll do more of that. But TV Movie of the Week, so it's a joint. It's, yeah. it's room and... And have you seen Red Shoes? I don't think I've ever seen Red Shoes. OK, you must see The Red okay, Shoes. You must see The Red Shoes. When, when it, so The Red Shoes is on uh, BBC Two on Saturday at 1.30 in the afternoon, and I really like the fact they now actually write that out in longhand for me, so it's it's not possible for me to actually get it wrong. It literally says 1.30 in the afternoon. It might be competing with Dungeons & Dragons in our house, but I'll see what I can do. OK. Thank you as a personal favour. Uh, so what else is out? So let's do Catfight, um, which is... A, a very strange film indeed, written and directed by Anna Turkel. Um, uh, it begins with uh, Sandra O oh as a woman who is described as the trophy wife of a businessman. Who is it? The film is set in a. It's either in the present or an imaginary near future, um, and it's in which what we learn about what's going on in the world is through a satirical television show that's kind of like, you know, uh, Saturday Night Live or something like that, in which somebody comes on and does a satirical monologue about what's going on in the world, uh, namely that there is a, a, a war brewing in the Middle East that a country's about to be involved in, um, but then uh, interspersed with flatulence jokes. So, anyway, um, she is married to a businessman who is about to, to land a contract which will make him clean up um, by cleaning up after the war, which is about to happen. Her son is an artist, and she tells him, firstly, art isn't a real thing, and secondly, she says, you can be anything you want, just don't be this. Um, She goes to a reception, 
uh, where she has a few drinks. And she goes to the bar and behind the bar, she meets Anne Hesh's Ashley, who is somebody that she clearly knew a long time ago when they were in education and clearly they were friends and then they fell out. Uh, Ashley is an artist, but is now working behind a bar. So they have a very sort of brittle conversation with each other about, oh, what are you doing? And she says, oh, are you still doing that art thing that you do? And she says, yes, I am still doing that art thing that you do. What are you doing? The next thing you know, all this broiling tension between them is happening out in the corridor and is turning physical. God, watch it. You watch it. Doing. What are you doing? Just, why are you standing in the middle of the stairwell? I'm just standing here. Uh, oh my god, are you smoking pot? Oh, you're pathetic. Oh my god. Are you pathetic? What are you? You're a caterer, Ashley. You're a trophy wife, Veronica. I am a mother. Oh man, I feel sorry for your kid. That's a proper fight, that is. Yeah, that is. And that is just one of, I think, it's three, maybe four proper fight sequences in which you get the full, you know, Jackie Chan punching sounds. Every time, you know, a punch lands, you get that boom sound. And when it, the first time you see it, it's, it's quite remarkable because it is very kind of... I, somebody, there was a couple of reviews saying the fight is very realistic. It's absolutely not very realistic. It's, I mean, it's very physical, but it's absolutely not realistic. It's from a, you know, it is a... It's using stuff. That's not what fights sound like in the real world. Fights, as everyone knows in the real world, last about three seconds. And they usually consist of the first person punching the second, the other person, and that's the end of that, which is why the whole idea of movie fights in which people bounce off walls and other things is complete nonsense. I mean, that doesn't happen in the real world. However, um, they have this fight, this massive fight, and at the end of it, Anne Hesh's character walks off, at which point Sandro's character gets up and then falls downstairs and knocks herself unconscious and wakes up two years later, having been in a coma, and her entire life has completely fallen apart. She has lost absolutely everything. Meanwhile, Anne Hesh's character, who does these incredibly sort of aggressive, violent paintings full of red has done very well for herself because the war has happened and suddenly the world is interested in all these things. So there's a reversal of fortune thing, that one of them has gone from being you know, very, very successful and the other one being unsuccessful and the reverse. And then during the course of the movie, these roles reverse and mirror in very sardonic and very sort of sarcastic and satirical fashion. Meanwhile, as I said, burbling on in the background is this weird stuff about, you know, what's going on with the country. And again, a movie that was made... Um, obviously before the election results. There's one moment in which Sandra Oh has to go and stay with her mad aunt who talks to trees. And her aunt is introducing her to all the trees and she says, that one over there is Hillary. You know, she's good but untrustworthy. That's Donald. And then says something very rude. So all that stuff is going, again, sort of made uh, you know more pertinent by what's actually happened since then. It's an it's a very odd film, and you spend a lot of it. It's sounding that way. <laughs> it's a very odd film, and you do spend uh, segments of it attempting to kind of get a handle on it. But actually, as a sort of weird, unruly, and odd little indie satire, it worked rather well. Not least because I very much like both uh, Sandra Oh and Anne Hesh in this film. They give uh, terrific performances. Alicia Silverstone is Anne Hesh's uh, partner with whom she's uh, trying to have a baby. We haven't heard from her for a while. 
and, and not on screen, but I think she's done a lot of stuff. Okay. Um, I think she's done a lot of stuff behind the screen. I think at one point she had her own production company. Correct me if I'm wrong in thinking that. I think she's. I think she's somebody who's very into driving her own projects. And um, anyway, so the performances are, you know, very strong, very out there, very full on, very. I mean, you know, that kind of bitter satire thing works very well. There's one moment in it, in which Anne Hesh is walking in the street wearing a, a sort of baggy overcoat and a grey hat. And I thought, if they ever make a remake of The Man Who Fell to Earth, they have to get Anne Hesch to play the David Bowie role. Because she absolutely... You know, people were saying for ages that Tilda Swinton yeah, very much should so. play Bowie in a thing. Well, Anne Hesch even more so looks exactly like... So, it's a very odd film. There's a very sort of uh, funny and wry use of classical music. I think some people in the screening that I were in were put off by the level of the fighty, smashy, thumpy, bashy stuff that was going on. But I, I sort of went with. I mean, because the, because the film is satirical, because it has it's a number of repeated jokes about you know that when when she wakes up and the doctor says, "I'm the comatose doctor," she says, "Pardon," she says, "I'm the comatose doctor." Pardon. I'm the doctor who deals with comatose patients. And that is a joke which is reeled out time and time again, as is the flatulence joke. But it worked for me in a strange and sort of... If, if, if it's something that you'd seen on video late one night, you would have thought this is really remarkable. As it is, it may find it, may find it hard to find its audience, but I think it has genuine cult potential. Paul Thane in Aberdeen... Has he seen it? M.A. Honours... And various grade four B flat trumpet. Very good. I managed to catch a preview of Catfight, which I found to be an entertaining and enjoyable movie, if only because films like this don't really get made anymore. <laughs> Too it feels right. like a movie from the early 2000s. Quirky and eccentric, Woody Allen style New York caricatures coming together in an unusual plot that could have come from someone like Todd Salons or uh, Larry David. It's also refreshing uh, in that you don't often get to see female actors in this age bracket lead a movie. Both Sandra Oh and Anne Hesch. They're great. Get a chance to showcase their acting chops, playing irritating characters, but making the most of the comedy in the script and their respective stereotypes. Where the movie fell down for me was that it took a lot of swipes in the background at American culture, the US government, foreign wars, inequality, topical television shows. This felt easy, even lazy targets for a film with this much promise and distracted from the central rivalry. The three prolonged fights also pushed the film momentarily from comedy and satire into our cartoonish farce. The hits are too big, with whooshing and crunching sound effects that became uh, ridiculous, as we just heard and as you just mentioned. And the sequences feel much longer than they need to be, although the film is called Catfight. Catfight feels genuinely refreshing coming through in an era where the majority of movies feel more like safe investments designed by committee that actively avoid taking any risks. <laughs> this feels unique, original, fresh, and although it doesn't land every punch, it's more than funny enough to remain entertaining for the duration. Can I also yeah. say, on the subject of Anne Hesch, Anne Hesch uh, is one of the stars, along with uh, Christopher Walken, um, of Wildside, Donald Hamill's film. And Wildside was a really interesting case that, that Donald Cameron made it, and it's a really, really strange movie. And then it was massively recut by the original distributors, New Image, I think it was, and they put it out as a really tawdry sort of 90-minute, basically straight-to-video erotic thriller. And then years later, with obviously Cameron no longer around, um, China Kong oversaw a rebuilding of the original film, which I think Frank Mazzola had gone in to, to re-edit. And... Uh, I was involved in getting this premiere at the Edinburgh Film Festival and it was remarkable. It was one of the most extraordinary examples of you see two cuts of a film and they are literally different films. 
they are like completely different films. And one of them is Donald Camel's Wild Side, which is the film that he set out to make. And the other one is Wild Side, the film that looks like it was knocked together in some garage by people making straight-to-video erotic thrillers. And it's it, it, it's just breathtaking. If you get a chance to see Wild Side... Also, Wild Side has Christopher Walken's most out-there performance ever. Well, there must and be if quite you, a few yeah, of those. And if you think about the, the range of Christopher Walken's strange performances, Wild Side is in a world of its own. If you had to... Uh, well, let's make a comparison. I have more films to do in some I know you. I'm, go gonna, I'm not going to... No, go on, no, eight, eight minutes. No, no, that's fine, go on. Humorous showbiz. Go, 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 go. Are you trying to hurry me? No, I'm not. Go ahead. OK. Here's, here's the idea. I've got a, It's a battle for you. Yeah. All right? Cat fight versus fist fight. Oh, well, cat fight would eat fist fight for breakfast. Wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. In one round? Yes, in one, one punch. Straight knockout. That would be like, a, like what a proper fight is like. All right. Uh, so how many more movies have we got? Well, I'll do I'll, uh, two, but I'll get through them sort of quickly. Is quite it Pierce so. Brosnan time? It is Pierce Brosnan Excellent. time. Is it? Well, I don't know. In general, uh, if it's okay. Pierce Brosnan time, that's usually, unless it's the last bomb. Well, film, except for the terrible. fact, OK, Pierce Brosnan, who I have to say I like very much. Yes. I'm a fan of Pierce Brosnan. I mean. But he does seem recently to have downshifted into movies which are basically direct-to-video affair. He made that thing, Survivor, do you remember that? Which was notable mainly for the fact that Emma Thompson had bailed out at the very last moment. And, you know, good for her because it was just all over the place. And then there was that thing, No Escape, uh, with Owen Wilson, which was kind of, you know started off all right and then Piers Brosnan did this basil exposition background information and then it turns into kind of shrieking xenophobic nonsense. And there was Urge, which I have to say passed me by. Now this. So the story is, this is basically a techno thriller for people who are scared of techno. And so you'd think that was me, right? Okay, because I'm... Techno, techno, techno. Techno, 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 techno. Is that the jazz bit? Yeah. So um, he... He plays uh, Mike Regan, who is the owner, the Irish owner of an airline who is in financial trouble. And uh, he's about to launch a smart app, which is Uber for airlines. So basically, you can find out when private jets are at an airplane station near you and you can, you know, but while he's doing the demo for the uh, for the app, the technology goes wrong. And he calls in this guy played by uh, James Freshfield to uh, basically come in and sort the technology out. And the guy does. Then he says, that's brilliant. You should come to my house because I got a smart house and the smart house is playing up really badly. And I really need somebody to come in and fix the Wi-Fi. So the guy goes over to his house and indeed starts working with all the Wi-Fi. And uh, it's one of the houses in which everything is controlled by computers. Everywhere you look, there's cameras. And uh, Piers Brosnan has uh, a daughter called Caitlin. And the next thing you know, the technology guy is actually creepy, spying, pervy, all that sort of stuff, because, in fact, he is a creepy, you know, cyber techno stalker. I will play you a clip that would somehow be representative of the film. Okay, But they didn't play it. They didn't give us one of them. They gave us one from later on when Piers is having to break into his apartment. Shall we hear it? Yeah, we'll make the most of it. Midburn is on the move. Abort.
I'd rather have. Is a that fist the most fight. rubbish clip you've ever heard in it's your like, life? It's just got nothing in it. No, exactly. So basically, okay. So you know, there's the cyber guy, and there's the house, and there's the thing, and it's so. So it's Sliver. You remember Sliver, a film which seemed dated when Joe Esterhouse adapted it from Ira Levin's novel back in the early '90s. So the plot points are all familiar. You know, the surveillance camera, the grinning menace, the inevitable shower scene on the video thing. Um, I, he's quite com- he's quite convincing as the kind of crazy voyeur, and the script is updated with a lot of post Snowden stuff about snooping. Um, but it is one of those films in which you go, okay, this is absolutely a film which is made to be a straight to to DVD movie that if you you know you, you you'd watch on a Friday night because there was nothing else to do. And it's directed by uh, John Moore. Now, do you remember John Moore? Because John Moore's an interesting guy. John Moore's directed uh, Good Die Today Hard. He also did the Omen uh, remake, which was back in, I'm just looking at 2006. And if, you, if you've ever seen the DVD of uh, the Omen remake, the most exciting been. thing about it is there's this on-set footage of John Moore dealing with the production and just being complete, being brilliantly scabrous about how everything is really good. He picks up a sequel and says, it looks like it was made by deranged, not a sequel, a prop, it looks like it was made by deranged criminals. And at one point, somebody, one of the producers says, it's brilliant. We're going to have the biggest Tuesday opening ever. And he says, that's like coming forth in a one-legged egg and spoon race. So all I could think all the way through this was actually, this is what I want. What I want is the director commentary. So yeah, it's, 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 it's a straight-to-DVD movie that happens to have found its way into the cinema. What's it called again? It's called IT, because he is an IT consultant. Not to be confused with It, the scary movie about clowns and, oh, yes, they float. Yeah. They float. So be very careful. And when you. you're down here, you float too. That was actually quite disturbing. Wasn't it? Yeah. If And hope uh, you know... If you had clown makeup on, I would now be running from the room. <laughs> got 90 seconds to tell us about... OK, very quickly, Time of Their Lives, which is a film uh, made by Roger Golby, who years and years ago made an Oscar-nominated short called It's Good to Talk, and then made quite a sweet little film called The Waiting Room, which uh, I was on the front cover of that. It said, better than Sex in the City, Mark Kermode, The Culture Show. And I have to say, it, was, it seemed like the definition of damning with faint praise, although I actually quite liked it. So, uh, Joan Collins is a former screen siren who's fed up with uh, old-age pensioner confinement, um, and essentially what happens is that she decides that she wants to run away to go to a funeral because um, at the funeral there will be a load of uh, Hollywood types. Can we quickly have a clip? Listen, can you keep a secret? I am not that famous anymore. You thought I was dead, didn't you? No. Listen, Priscilla. I'm broke. I have nothing. And actresses cannot get old in Hollywood. You see, this funeral is my last chance. Everybody in Hollywood is going to be there. Heads of studios, agents, producers, directors. It'll be... It'll be like the Academy Awards. Which is basically what you need to know. So there she's talking to Pauline Collins, who finally, who is a sort of downtrodden uh, wife with with a, 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 a bereavement in her past and a grumpy husband in the present, who decides that actually, why not? Why don't we just run away? And then they run away. They go, so it's kind of Shirley Valentine post, post. It's kind of quirky and uh, odd and very, very uneven and a little bit dotty. Franco Nero, Jolie Richardson uh, upping the ante. There are moments in it that made me smile and made me chuckle, but although it is all over the place. Movie of the week. The Love Witch. Well, that was the end of the show, and now it's the start of the final leg, that extra little bit. Final leg. That's... Like the, the added on bit. Uh, have you... Uh, sorry, I ask you this. Have you ever actually done 
any form of uh, not marathon, but like a half marathon or a quarter marathon? No, I have never done that. Okay, I did. A, you, you know, I got, I, I got dodgy knees, so I yeah, so I stopped doing. Sir, it. I got dodgy knees, sir. Dodgy knees, can't do it, sir. Got dodgy knees. No, Is that like having a, a back at school, like my a knees bone spur on your heel. No. Which somebody else had. I was fine at school. In fact, I was a, a magnificent physical presence. Were you? Yeah. I ran in the county uh, county athletic. Oh, well, there we go. So you have done running. No, this is like, it was like 400 metres uh, relay. Okay. So, so what not you, a half marathon. You were good for short sprints. Short sprints. Okay. Child one is a very good marathoner. Does that count? Yes. Does it do, do does child one do, yeah. do, do marathons? Yes. Wow. In fact, he just does them for fun. He came home the other day. I said, you look at me. He said, I've just done a marathon. I said, what? And marathon, yeah. sorry, excuse me, 26? 26 miles, yeah. And child one literally just does marathons. Yeah, and he gets it from me, obviously. That's astonishing. When I was at school and I Why was... are we talking about marathons, by the way? Because you said the final leg of something. And I was, I was... wondering whether you were actually... Talking, because when people say the final leg, they, they're, they're often... You know, and we have a huge, a huge number of our listeners listen while running. Yes, or in the gym. And this particularly, because this is the podcast extra, the thing, this will be the final leg. So presumably there will be some people listening to this whilst on the home straight. The last gasp. The last, exactly. How, is, how, is your, how are your gym sessions coming on? Are you still doing them? Mm-hmm. And what, do you, what would you do? What, if you, we should do a workout book anyway. A workout book? We should definitely do <laughs> you that. do a video. But if, I can wear Lycra. If we were going to follow your routine, yeah. what would we be doing? Running. I do the running on the. I mean, I do either the running in the when it's when it's not rainy, rainy. I do the running in the outside, but when it is rainy, rainy, which has been a lot recently, I do the running on the running machine, which is. I mean, the thing is that when you're running in the outside, you get to see trees and flowers and birds, but you step in puddles. When you're running on the running machine, you get to just see the uh, the, the the mirror in the gym. You could watch a film. You can't though, can you? Because you're running. Well, yeah, you could probably... And, and then the other problem is I put my headphones in and they fall out because obviously I run like, you know, like an elephant running and there's a lot of... Sort of so it's I, I, don't, I don't find that very satisfying, but I, but I do. Do you do weights? Pardon me? Do you do weights? No, I don't. I probably... Sh- no, I don't. I don't... Yeah, it's not... I mean, I'm... It, it's Sit-ups, not, stretchy things? No, running. Just running. Yeah. What, what do you do? Because you go to the gym. Yeah, I, yes, I do. This, this is not... no. I'm just interested now. Robin's got that face on again. Robin can keep that face. Robin's on as long face as he says, wants. "I thought the Douglas Adams stuff was boring. This, now this you're comparing gym routines is even worse." What do you do at the gym? Do a bit of uh, uh, twenty. I do twenty-five minutes on the uh, cross trainer. Oh yeah, I've never got the hang of that at all. That's, it's just, that's some like, city uppy things. That's like rubbing things. your, you know, patting your head and rubbing your stomach at the same time. The cross trainer, isn't it? It's like it's all it's all hands and feet. a bit of swimming. Oh, swimming! That's good for you. Yes, swimming is very good for you. Anyway, okay. on to other matters. I'm sure, people are thrilled by that. No, I was going to say I did do a quarter marathon once in flip flops, but then I realised that you know that because that's how the whole thing came about with your cheating. Correct, Ludo from it wasn't a cheat. It was a cheat. Ludo from London. I don't think there are many Ludos that listen to the show, but... Is Ludo her name? His name? I think it... I don't know if it's a, a her or a him. I'm imagining it's a him. But it's Ludo Dornay. OK. Um, from where, where would you imagine that that's from? Well, Ludo's in London. No, I know, but where would you imagine Ludo is it? I mean, it's just, I would, simply I because it's a name that I haven't heard before. I'm just wondering where... The aristocracy is what I would think. Oh, Ludovic, really? Ludovic? Maybe. Oh, Ludovic. Sorry, Ludo Ludovic. Sorry, that was the thing I was... When I, it's my guess. Okay. Anyway, Ludo, anyway, Ludo says, 
Uh, many listeners in the past have bragged about how much of your back catalogue they've listened to. I'd like to add my name to the list. At work, I'm allowed to listen to music, but I decided about a year ago to use your dulcet tones to help me through the day. I managed to find all the podcasts going back to 2005. I didn't know they were... Uh, yeah, I'm amazed that they go back that far. And I downloaded them onto my fruit-based device, still not funny. It became a bit of a habit, and as a chain smoker lights a cigarette from the stub of the last one smoked... I could continue working as the angry lady appeared, then disappeared, then reappeared again, and you both started again. I imagine <laughs> by the angry woman, that's the... Thank you for listening to this Five Live podcast. You can listen to other podcasts and download at the same time. That's right. And if you'd like to vote for your favourite podcast, you know what you have to do. Yes, uh, it's you o- go to www.britishpodcastawards.com slash vote. Yes, that's the one. And don't forget, and make sure you do it, and tell all your friends. And don't look under Wittertainment, because we're not there. We're under Kermode and Mayo. Yes, and look lively, by the way. Stop flagging now. Show a bit of interest and tuck your shirt in. Chin up, chest out. <laughs> Now, that would be good. She certainly should say that, Angry Woman. <laughs> when Angry Woman comes on in a few moments' time, she's going to sound a little bit insipid. I know. And a little bit kind of flaccid. Is that the right word? It'll do. I have calculated, says Ludo, I have spent more than... that over more than a year, I have consumed a month's worth of wittertainment. So that is an entire month doing nothing else other than listening to your show. I've spent roughly a twelfth of the last year of my life listening to you witter on, and I'm not even a big film fan. Having to wait a week now seems like torture, but it doesn't mean I'll appreciate you more. Love the show, Steve, from Ludo, who basically listened to everything that we've ever done that's available over a month, non-stop. When did we, when did we start doing this programme? 1863. <laughs> no, sarcasm aside... When did we actually start doing it? Well, it kind of evolved, didn't it? So I started doing this show about 2001 and then... And I, but I was on it from when you would... That's right, because yeah, you'd been in your wilderness for a while. That's right, my wilderness and years. Call, and then you came on. So, we, But then that was like Friday for 40 minutes, 45 minutes. Yes. Kind of thing. Right, OK. So did, did, did we start being this show in... in, in Robin, how... When... About, seven and, about seven and a half years ago, it became the two-hour Feast of Delights. Feast of Delights, that's fine. Which is so, will we have a 10th tenth, a tenth anniversary? Well... I mean, you know, obviously... Yeah. I think we probably should. Maybe a little tour of the Commonwealth, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yes, I think that would be a very good idea, because it must be... Is it about seven years, Robin? Is that right? It's about seven years, yeah. I'm just trying to make him feel involved, since he spent so much of the programme... With a face on. With a face on. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> someone having a, a moan... John Mander, grade 7 French horn. I'm a 14-year-old. Wow, grade 7 French horn is very impressive. I'm a 14-year-old and I've been a member of your church for two years and I'm very annoyed. I'm forced to write due to Mark's patronisation... What have I done? ...of the younger generation. Previously, it's been anger about Deadpool's age rating, more at the BBFC than Mark's view, but his casual slagging off of young people... Casual slagging off. ...when reviewing Logan sent me a new... Whatever that means. Anyway, as someone who cannot see 15s legally, it hurts to have my favourite film critic consistently use the phrase, not for young people. I believe that young people are treated as far too delicate. When you pass the age of 13, you can basically deal with anything that film can throw at you. Okay, that... Is a contentious point. Yeah. As someone who used to get nightmares from films such as Wreck-It Ralph, I believe I have a higher authority on this than two 50-year-old men. Thanks, that's quite good, actually. 50, yeah. Thank you. That's... Now I have to miss the excitement of the big screen for all my favourite movies, and having Mark treating us like a five-year-old really doesn't help. Anyway, so the interesting point there is I believe that young people are treated as far too delicate. When you pass the age of 13, you can basically deal with anything that film can throw at you. In general, that's just not true. No, but... it's it's just not true. 
Um, if you're 14, then maybe you feel like that, though I always realise that. No, sure, I understand. Uh, let me say, for example, on the issue of Logan. Logan here is a 15-rated film, OK? At 15, you can go and see it on your own. In America, Logan, like Deadpool, is an R-rated movie. An R-rated movie means anyone can see it if they go with a parent, uh, a guardian or accompanying parent. Now, that seems to me to be a completely half-witted system. It's basically saying... You know, you can't go and see it on your own until you're 17, which I agree is too old, but you can see it with your parent or going at the age of eight if you want to. And it just, it's nuts. The BBFC system, and I'm really sorry if at the age of 14 you feel that you're being excluded from Logan. The BBFC system exists to stop films like that being cut because there was a long period... And there was the this really came to a, to to a head around the time of this is ancient history, around the time of what was called the summer of violence. There was a summer in which there was a number of movies which were were R rated films, which were very violent. And what happened was they got trimmed in order to get an R rating. Over here, they were generally rated 18 at that point. Now, a 15 certificate is what an 18. Honestly, you think it's hard now. When I was a kid, most of the movies that you're talking about not being able to see were eight or X-rated, as they were called then, and you couldn't see them on your own until you couldn't see them until you were 18, regardless of whether you had a parent or not. And what the BBFC system does is to put a hard age rating on 15 in order to prevent the necessity to cut what are clearly grown-up movies in order that, that they're not quite as offensive as they could be for young, younger viewers. I, I know exactly how frustrating it is. When I was a kid, it was you, A, double A and X. U was anybody. A was with a parent. Double A, you had to be 14. And X, you had to be 18, 16 previously, but then 18. And the system that we have now is much... And and I, I'm really sorry if I seem patronising, but... Um, I, that is just something that I see. I am very much in favour of the BBFC's age rating system. I think they've got it right. I think you compare it to the way that things are around the world. They are right. There are other countries in Europe in which the age ratings are much, much less and, you know, the stuff can be seen much earlier on. And those countries tend to be uh, more liberal on the subject of sex than they do than, than we do here. And that's the primary difference. But violence tends to be sort of viewed in, in different ways. My feeling is if Log it's not just that Logan's a 15. Logan's a high 15. I mean, Logan is a top-end 15. Logan is up there, borderline 18. It's, it's the right rating. And I, I really don't mean seeing patronising, but believe me, I lived through this as well. And, you know, when I was a kid, I couldn't see all the Planet of the Apes movies because two of them were double A. You know, one of them. No, two of them. I think two of them were. Beneath, Beneath was an A. I think... No, Beneath was a double A. I think Beneath was a double A, and I have the suspicion that Conquest was a double A as well. Maybe it was a double A, or maybe it wasn't. But it probably was. I trust your instinct. Is your name Luna? Yes. Thank you. You didn't get that joke either, did you? No. It's, it's a, a bit. It's, it's a bit you do this on purpose. A bit in sleep. You do an obtuse movie says, joke and then you look no, at No, no, because you it's, didn't it's, get it was that. a double A, it's a double A, double A. And you, you said perhaps it was a double A. letter. No, but, but because there's a thing in, in Sleeper when when Diane Keaton comes back, right? She comes back from the resistance and Woody Allen's been brainwashed and she says, It's Luna, me, Luna. You remember? Luna, me, Luna. And there's a long pause and he goes, your name is not Luna. <laughs> so that's what I should... That's what you should do. You need to email me the, re the correct response. I will do that. Joke. Because that rather conveniently gets us round to our favourite point of the week. Which is? Our DVD of the week. 
Bit slow on the button. Yeah, that can be tightened in the edit. Okay. <laughs> bats! Bats! I have some facts about bats. Bats have unusually robust immune systems. Bats are the only mammals that can fly. They are also among the only mammals known to feed on blood. Blood. Common misconceptions and fears about bats have led many people to regard the creatures as unclean disease carriers. <laughs> but bats are actually very helpful in controlling the population of crop-destroying insects and talking politely to old people. Bats make up one-fifth of the mammal population on Earth, wear their best clothes on Sundays. They are like one of the contenders for DVD of the Week, Nocturnal Animals. What are your choices and what will Dr K pick this week? Benito Dancy says, I'd like to stay awake and finish The Light Between Oceans, but instead I will, like Mark, <laughs> pick a large pair of reading glasses and be kept awake by nocturnal animals. Keith Fraser says, wow, that's quite a selection. I choose, which is published online, by the way, if you're wondering what they're responding to, I choose Apocalypse Pompeii, which I presume was made as a cheap knockoff of that other Pompeii movie, the Titanic gladiator hybrid with Fit Kit Harrington showing off his abs and Kiefer Sutherland chewing the scenery. I partly just want to get Mark to read out one of the jaw-dropping jaw dropping <laughs> plot synopses, but I'm going to do it. Mount Vesuvius erupts when a family visits Pompeii. The daughter uses her skill and her father's ability to, in order to escape the disaster. This makes it sound like a superhero movie. Does she have claws in her feet? When a former special ops commander visits Pompeii, his wife and daughter are trapped as Mount Vesuvius erupts with massive force. While his family fights to survive the deadly onslaught of heat and lava, he enlists his former teammates in a daring op beneath the ruins of Pompeii. Which sounds at least averagely rubbish. <laughs> It does, doesn't it? No one visits for Pompeii for any other reason. No. It ought to go wrong. And Ian Miles, finally, this is a memorable list. Well light between the oceans, beautifully filmed with excellent performances from two actors at the peak of their careers. Mark will choose Nocturnal Animals because it is simply the best film of the week. Pot pickers. So what is our DVD of the week? I am going to don the spectacles and uh, go for Nocturnal Animals. Uh, not least because... There they're, was not, a, they're nice spectacles. Yeah, but there was an interview that you did with Amy Adams when it was evident that not only was she going to get nominated, probably, you know, if for two movies, um, I know it can only be one in each category, but that she would probably win, and then she didn't for neither Nocturnal Animals nor Arrival. And she's really good. And uh, I think it's a, an interesting film. I think there are things about it that are provocative, but deliberately so. I love the Arbor Kozniowski score, which I just think is just wonderful really really great and i think it's a very clever telling of a tale within a tale within a tale and i it, it bears repeated viewing yeah. it, it is shocking in places there are things in it that are really alarming but i thought it was it was well done and amy adams was on for aliens and it was tom ford who was for, for arrival for arrival what did i say aliens aliens oh that was a bit of a that's the one with sigourney weaver that's the one and so yeah. she was on for arrival tom ford was on for nocturnal animals and it was what tom said afterwards where he said i think the vote's going to get split i he think he was she, right she yeah. you know she is fantastic in both movies could win for both both movies but if you vote for amy then it's chances are it's going to miss out and that's probably the yeah. reason why no absolutely it absolutely split the vote you know the music's finished Okay. That, that probably means we should. This is like at the disco at the end of the night when they have to turn the lights on and they go, it's finished. Off you go. Look at the mess in this place. Pick up your bottles of pop. But it's okay because you're now off to go and do All Request Friday. In fact, I'm now on uh, uh, Radio 2 Country.
which what, I should have mentioned earlier. I mentioned what, now this moment. Show. Yeah, ready. To, we're doing all request country because Ready Two Countries on this weekend. I said I was going to. Is that a, it. is that sorry? Is that a pop up station? It's a pop up station. You can find it because the shows are available for a month. It's a all request. So I'm actually on non-stop for five hours. Wow. Two hours of this, an hour of country, and then two hours of all request. Five hours of Simon Mayo. It's just, it's more than the human mind can take. It's more than anyone can take. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's certainly right. But anyway, um, it's been fabulous, Mark. It's been fabulous. Been it's been tippity top, mate. Particularly you, good. I particularly enjoyed our Kong discussion. Oh! 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 By oh, the way... What? Production team lacking in just reminding us, thanks very much, don't worry about it, we'll just mention it and what, remember you, it, even though we're old. You can vote for Hello us. to Jason Isaac. Oh, yes! Only, only the captain from outer space. Is he Captain Lorca or something like that? Is that what he is? Well, um, let me Look Google it, it. Hang on, hang on. So hang on. we just, we almost got to the end of the Look, show. No one reminding us. That's unbelievable. Yeah, because now we have to say not hello to Jason Isaacs, but presumably live long and prosper. Or what's the phrase that everybody used? You know, yeah, ha- some, yeah something like that. Hailing on all frequencies. Uh, I, th- I think. We should be set, we should be claiming Captain Lorca. Captain Lorca. Captain Lorca. I think that's precisely what I said. I know, no, you I'm just confirming it because you said is that right? And I said he, I'll look wonder, it up. Will he be a good captain, do you think? I don't know. I mean, do, do we know anything about it at all? No. It's Star Trek Discovery, right? And there appear to be they appear to be in pre-production of well, several episodes. Would he have ten. got would he have got anywhere close to this part? No. Hadn't been no, for us. No, no, we we elevated him above the parapet. Do you think he has an agent? Because if he doesn't, we well, should be us, isn't it? We should be his agent. his Witter agent. That is a do you know what? That's actually a very good idea. We the could, Witter Agency. We, with the Witter Agency. We yeah. could actually be behind the careers of a whole raft of yeah. if you were an aspiring actor, yeah. you'd ignore us completely. So okay, so who would we have? We'd have Jason, yes. Toby Jones, yes. Ob- would be nothing without so, us. So they have to be people who who we have made. Made, yeah, exactly. Stephen yeah. Fry would have a lot fewer roles if it wasn't for us. Yeah, that's right. He'd be out. He'd be out in his ear. Yeah, uh, I think Tom Hanks probably is part of our agency. Yeah, we could run. We could do a US based. Yeah, the Witter Agency. Felicity he'd, Jones, he'd I think she owes a lot to us. Yeah. Although the archers are going to claim her, but the archers' it's, agency is just rubbish. Yeah, stays. it's not it's a, the arch agency. Doesn't, I, doesn't sound right, does this it? This is going to. This, this is, is. This is. We, good. If we're not here next week, yeah, it'll be because the Witter agency has taken, taken off. Big, what kind of percentage do we charge? Twenty-five each. Twenty-five. Twenty-five. Okay. All right. That's very good. That's not a bad cast list. So, in future, by yeah. the way, out there, if you want to make a movie, if you want, if you want Hanks, Witter agency or Jones, yeah, Felicity or Toby, yeah. You come to us. It's first. all in the casting. Thank you. It's all Thank we can literally much, put yeah. that package together for you. You have that heart now. You look like a hard-headed businessman now. Am I? Yeah. yeah. I've got it. It's. I'm on fire. I'm on fire with ideas. Excellent. Very good. Anyway, well done to Jason. That's very, very exciting. It's news. just I'm. I. I was literally down. You know, dancing around the room. We. I think we probably need another one of those. What words can Jason insert into his first uh, space mission? He has to say ukulele. He well, has to get, done, you, but he's done that. Okay, come up with another one, and and, and I, I would be delighted to see Jason attempt to get a word into a Star Trek. Series. I mean, you know, go on. How about um, I? It's quantum, baby. They <laughs> can't do that. No, How about podcast that? How about Tinkety Tonkle Fruit down, down, down with the Klingons? Down, down, down with the Klingons. Down with the Klingons. That's it. Tinkety Tonkle Fruit go. down with the Klingons. That's what it is. Boom. Thank you. Boom. Jason, you can have that for free. We're scriptwriters as well. Boy, talented, aren't Out we? of here. 
on digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.